0: I've been known to be a little judgmental in my time, but I do try to reserve my judgments for the things that really matter in life. Like, if you drive a Camaro, or your favorite band is Creed, I'm going to make certain assumptions about you, not the least of which is that you and I probably should stay away from each other from now on. Unsurprisingly, even more than cars or music, this holds true for my attitudes toward film. Like, when someone says that Scarface is their favorite movie, it kind of fries my circuits. Like, I don't even know how to talk to them like a person after that. I know everybody is different, but how could I have one opinion about a movie, and somebody else have an opinion so… wrong? Most of the time, when I don't dismiss their bullshit opinion out of hand, if I really delve into their reasoning and try to reframe the movie in my mind from their perspective, nope, they're usually still wrong. Now hold your horses, I said most of the time. There are those rare occasions where I find myself in the strange position of having to yield the floor to a person whose opinion is vastly more pertinent than my own. Someone who can speak with greater authority on a particular film. Someone who was there when it was made, and literally wrote the book about it. And on today's episode, we actually have such a someone. Which is a good thing, because left to my own devices, I would shit on this movie so hard. I would shit on it twice and not think about it once. I would shit on this movie standing up. But that was me coming into this episode. For a long time, up until fairly recently in fact, this movie was kind of like the cinematic equivalent of a Camaro, and that I only knew like one person who loved it that wasn't a frat bro douchebag with barbed wire tattoos around their biceps and Oakley's on the back of their head like Guy Fieri. See back in 1997, that seemed to be this film's target demographic so maybe my opinion was tainted by the people around me when I first saw it. And to cut my high school self a little bit of slack, it's hard to appreciate satire when surrounded by a crowd who completely misses the point. And there's the rub. The big, fat, existentialist rub. You can't drive a Camaro, ironically. Even if you're driving a T-top IROC Z with Lannis Morissette's face painted on the hood and a vanity plate that says, don't you think you're still technically a Camaro driver. And you can't make a movie that inspires or at least provides validation to a generation of pro-war neo-fascist knuckle-draggers and claim it's a satire. At least not a successful one. Or can you? I don't know. My younger self might not have been right about this movie, but I might not have been entirely wrong either. War, war. Film, film. People, people, talky-talk. So do your part because service guarantees citizenship, as we welcome extra-special guest Paul Salmon to our discussion of Paul Verhoeven's erroneously received, testosterone-fueled, tongue-in-cheek adaptation of Robert Heinlein's quasi-unintentional sci-fi manifesto for functional fascism, Starship Troopers. Who are you?
1: We are the knights who say!
2: Rashid has seen it.
0: This is Danger Close.
3: Enough.
1: Welcome everyone to Danger Close Enough, our new Patreon show where we do war adjacent, war related, war on Liam, war on whatever. I, you know, I'm sure Titanic will end up here eventually. We're trying something new today. This was going to go on our Patreon feed, but because we have a very special guest that uh, is very generously given his time to be here, and he's an expert on the topic, we decided that we're going to release this one to the public so that everyone can listen. But first of all, my name is Dan, and I'm your host. I'm here with my co-hosts,
2: Katie
0: and Liam.
1: And today I'd like to introduce all of you, if you haven't heard of him before, to Mr. Paul Salmon. Who is a uh, film historian and a writer and an expert and i will let him give you a few of his qualifications i know him personally through my blade runner podcast because of course he wrote the uh very famous in that circle future noir which was a we call it the blade runner bible it's a long history of the making of that film he was on set for all that did over 80 hours of interviews with principal you know cast and and people on the production so paul I'd like to welcome you to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're talking about Starship Troopers today, by the way, if, if we, we haven't said that yet. And we're very excited to have you on, so I'd love to have you uh, introduce yourself.
3: Hi, uh, yeah, uh, my name is Paul M. Salmon, professionally. Uh, I am primarily known for writing Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner, available at Amazon as both a real book and as a Kindle edition, he said shamelessly. Um, But I'm actually the author of over 30 books and have been being published since 1975. And um, I guess due to the fragmentation of pop culture, people don't realize that I also was uh, involved in over 100 motion pictures, working on them in various capacities, including being a studio executive at Universal, Disney, and Orion Pictures, D. Entertainment Group. Normally in the publicity department as a junior executive, uh, but some of the many films on which I was not only on set but wrote books about and worked on were Starship Troopers, Blade Runner, Robocop, the original Conan the Barbarian, Silence of the Lambs, Blue Velvet, David Lynch's Dune, platoon uh i was involved in all of those as a filmmaker uh you know part of the crew or as an executive doing other things so um i suppose i do have a a fairly unique um perspective on these projects as far as starship troopers go I uh, wrote a book called The Making of Starship Troopers, which came out in 1997 uh, and is lavishly illustrated. I'm also a professional photographer, so there are a number of ph- uh, photographs in there of my own. Uh, I actually belong to the uh, what they call the Local 600 of the International Cinematographers Union for years so i shot sets as well um but uh, paul verhoeven's uh work uh particularly since i worked on robocop robocop 2 starship troopers and starship troopers 2. i have stayed in touch with paul uh, for decades and he and i i would go so far as to say our friends uh, both on and off the set and he had in starship troopers made an incredibly interesting and layered film that I think most people only respond to perhaps the surface of, but hopefully we'll get into that during the podcast. Paul, can I just say real
0: fast that, you know, you say that, you know, you have a a unique perspective that you're bringing to uh, our show today. I think you're a fucking badass. Like that (laughs) resume has, that CV just has my jaw on the floor. Like, I'm not going to
3: lie.
2: And weren't you also a film critic, Paul?
3: Well, yeah, I, Now, see, I was being modest
2: before. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely the most prestigious.
3: (laughs) Uh, Honestly, through the 70s, um, to support I and my wife, I was a furious freelance writer. I must have done hundreds, if not thousands, of print reviews and articles. And I had my own film columns. Um, I, I contributed to Los Angeles Times, American Cinematographer, Empire Magazine, Rolling Stone, a whole bunch of different Things and uh, I kind of straddled what what they used to call prosines, which were magazines that were kind of part fanzine and part professional. They were right in the middle, and one of those was called Cinefantastique, which was uh, very famous and influential at the time. Mm-hmm. And if you look that up, you will see. And I was kind of one of their cover boys. I did a lot of cover stories for them, including uh, David Lynch's Dune and The Black Hole, which I was working not only as a journalist following the entire production, but working at Disney at the same time. And so, yeah, I... Essentially, I, I started watching films in the early 1950s with my mother uh, and uh, was lucky enough to be there at the golden age, so-called, of science fiction film and have never stopped watching films. Um, I watch everything from uh, the latest um, Lars von Trier to uh, the latest uh, Eli Roth. And so, you know, you, I, I go high and low and I just love <laughs> cinema. And uh, I have a very um, refined taste, I suppose, after a lifetime of seeing films, but I've never lost that thrill of either being in a theater and the lights go down and the screen is dark and you don't know what's coming, or, you know, putting on something streaming and immediately going past the synopsis that's going to tell you the whole damn movie before you get a chance to watch it, you know? So, uh, there's a certain uh, childlike um, Purity that I still have towards cinema in general, but the adult side of me has seen how they're made and been involved with many of the people who make it so um, Somehow the reality has not overwhelmed the Pure love that I have for just film in general.
1: That's awesome. Since that segues really well into kind of introducing this film and introducing the critical reaction to the film I mean, you were there, you were in the production, and then I'm assuming at some point you actually went to a theater and saw it. but what what was your experience seeing the film for the first time and seeing the reaction to it?
3: Well, I as being involved in Starship Troopers from pre-production all the way to its release um, and beyond a little, I was actually when we were on location in Casper Wyoming filming some of the uh, whiskey outpost scenes and you know the uh, uh, Tango Urello scenes and so forth and so on. Um, I was watching daily, so I was seeing the raw footage as it came in. So, yeah, I saw it come together. The film itself uh was, it's an interesting story because you really have to, of course, start with Robert Heinlein's original novel, the uh, 1950s. Which I read
2: for this podcast, by the
3: way. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, there is a specious rumor out there as there often is on the internet by people who really, you know, and I don't mean this in a... In a derogatory way, but I do, who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and one of those is that the people who made Starship Troopers, including Paul Verhoeven, had never read Starship Troopers. That is absolutely false. The whole reason why Starship Troopers was made was because the screenwriter, Ed Newmeyer and the producer, John Davison, had both read it as kids, essentially, when it first came out, and were huge fans of Heinlein and the novel. And Phil Tippett, who did all of the stop-motion effects with the monsters in that, uh, with the uh, arachnid warriors and the brain bug and everything else, huge Starship Troopers fan. I read Starship Troopers when I was a boy, and we all knew that. And Verhoeven, when he was younger, was a science fiction fan himself. He read uh, Stranger in a Strange Land when it first came out and in a Dutch translation, Uh, read um, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and he's, oh, and at one point was even uh, very close to doing a Hollywood big-budget adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft short story called The Thing on the Doorstep which I would have loved to have seen Paul Verhoeven's version of The Thing on the Doorstep. I mean, holy smokes, that would have been something. As far as Paul actually reading Starship, that was one that had escaped him, primarily because it hadn't been translated at the time when it came out. And he did start to read it. And the problem he had with it, which is the problem that I think being around at that time and being part of sci-fi fandom for a long time, um, was that there were two camps on Heinlein's book that continue to this day. One of them say that it's a sacred text that was done as a juvenile novel uh, that should not be in any way, shape, or form de- you know, denigrated, Others say that, and and with more than a grain of truth, because Heinlein himself told me this in 1973, that that book was written in response to the ban the bomb movement of the early 1950s, and that Heinlein felt that there was a loosening of sort of ethical and moral and cultural strictures that were holding everything in place. And that by people saying, no, we got to get rid of nukes, that was only going to allow our enemies to stockpile nukes. And so, that with uh, also sort of a... um, At that point, he was going through a very strong libertarian phase. He was never a fascist. He was never like a right-wing Republican. Frankly, his wife, Virginia, was more to the right than Bob was. And um, he actually wrote Starship Troopers as almost a tract to say, this is what I don't like about our current society. And he was envisioning, in his mind, a possible future society that had eradicated those problems. Now, you have to understand that Heinlein was a military man. He was a Navy guy. You know, he was really someone who was... um very attached to the military. So, he had a fondness for the military and the mindset and understood all the mechanisms of it. But if you read the novel Starship Troopers objectively, the first third or so of it is a narrative. You've got this war going on with, uh, you know, the bugs and the skinnies, their alien allies. And then all of a sudden, Johnny Rico or Juan Rico, and he's Filipino in the book, by the way, goes into boot camp and the narrative stops. And it becomes more or less a tract. And I asked Heinlein that. I said, that middle section, he goes, oh, yeah, that was my pamphlet.
2: So, he knew what he was doing.
3: <laughs> he absolutely knew what he was doing.
2: It, you know, having read it, it very much feels that way. Like, as I was reading it, I was like, okay, this the scene where his old teacher is talking about um, that when we stopped hitting children is when the world went to shit. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that was the <laughs> point know? where I was like. Okay, we've really changed now. This is a different kind of story,
3: right? And and that's why it was uh, it was very controversial at the time of its release, even though it received a Hugo Award, and you know, um, uh, it, which is the highest award you can get in science fiction for literature. It, it was greeted with a firestorm of a controversy. And up to that point, Heinlein had been this untarnished god, and all of a sudden, he will put that one out, and people said, "What the hell happened to Robert Heinlein?" Did he fall off of a tree on his head? And um, it it was a very controversial book. Of course, he didn't ever shy away from controversy. However, I think that Heinlein has for many years been misunderstood because, let's face it, three years later, he did Stranger in a Strange Land, which is all about free love and a society based on love without rules and very much a proto-hippie type of culture thing. So, in one, one little space of time, he went from there to there. And towards the end of his career, he was writing books that were extremely what people would call liberal. So, you know, he kept evolving. But having said that, Paul Verhoeven started reading Starship Troopers once he was approached by Ed Meyer and John Davison to get involved with this. And he started reading it and he said, I stopped when he got to boot camp when I realized the propaganda set in. And so, that's where you hear people say, oh, he never read the book. No, he read it up to a certain point and he said, that's why I lost interest. But he skimmed it. He skimmed it from there. He did skim it all the way to the end. And what attracted him to the project was that Starship Troopers on the surface is a science, is a militaristic science fiction adventure story about an interstellar war between humanity and a race of intelligent extrasolar arachnids. That's the, the surface of it. Just below it, it seems like a kind of a gung-ho World War II type of, yeah, let's go out and... Jingoistic. Another way people saw it was as a very pro-violent, pro-military, pro-imperialistic type of, let's get those bugs and smash them and kill them in pro-violence. What they were really saying... And this is Paul Verhoeven, and the writer, and John Davison, and all of us who were working on it understood, but the American public in particular, and the European viewers, when it first came out, completely misunderstood, was that it was a critique of the very thing it was showing. It was a parody. It was a satire.
2: I mean, at one point, there's literally a guy in an SS uniform. Oh, absolutely! That no one noticed.
1: That's and and it's Doogie Hauser. It's Doogie yes. Hauser. <laughs> Doogie Himmler, as they called him on set. Do, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you
3: know, um, having been there, uh, by the way, because I did write the book called "The Making of Starship Troopers," which you can find on Amazon. Um, having having been there, it was always their intent to. Essentially, it was a, cr- a critique of crypto-fascism. What everyone on this set said, we are showing a fascist society of the future that works. Which was an interesting way of combining the two of them. Because fascism, of course, is a real loaded buzzword, right? But what they were showing was a fascist society that worship power, had you know, gathered around the power figures, military might, you know, crush, crush, nothing but propaganda, demonize the enemy. But at the same time, Paul Verhoeven, and I'll I'll get to you a second why he did that, was also uh, critiquing American contemporary foreign policy of the late 1990s. And if you go back and you look, there was a lot of expansionism going on behind the scenes. Yes, it was the Clinton era, but at the same time, there were things going on where America was spreading its influence, and he's a he's
1: a European. Post-First Iraq War.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. You know, the Gulf War, as they called it. And, uh, you know, so uh, Paul has been a lifetime uh, follower of politics, but more importantly, Paul Verhoeven lived through the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands in World War II. He was born into it. He was born just before it happened. And some of his earliest memories are of the bombings of the British military on The Hague, where he lived, and houses exploding across the street. And then being with his father and being forced off a tram in downtown Amsterdam, where they happened to go visit once during the war, and being pulled off by uniformed Nazis and marched down a sidewalk so that they could see a line of 30 resistance fighters who had been shot in the back of the head and were lying on the pavement as an example for the Dutch to not, you know, resist. And so, that is Paul Verhoeven's earliest memories. And so, he lived under a fascist society. And he is very familiar with the trappings of it, and to a certain extent, he keeps returning to that over and over and over again. And in fact, if you look at his films, you will see fascist elements in RoboCop, in Total Recall, in Starship Troopers, even in something as basic as Basic Instinct. The police in that are, you know, it's a very it's something that he's he's fascinated with. But he's a very intelligent guy. And he knows how to entertain and he knows how to push buttons, but at the same time as an intellectual and as someone who actually has a degree in quantum physics with an emphasis on Einstein's theory of relativity. I don't know many people who have that who are in the film business. No. He's he's able to thread these things and they're all in Starship Troopers.
0: What about Showgirls though? <laughs> That's a lot of fascism in Showgirls.
3: Uh, showgirls is actually, it's interesting because when it came out, I called him up and I said, what were you thinking? That was the first, first <laughs> words out of my mouth, what were you guys thinking? And he very serious, he laughed. He's got a great sense of humor. And, you know, he's, uh, he's also, you know, he's a tough man. You know, he, he, he's no shrinking violent. But he said, he said, you know, he says, I understand. He says, we really exaggerated things. He said, but I can give you recordings and transcripts of every single instance that happened to women in reality while we were actually researching that. They went to Vegas and they talked to strippers, they talked to hookers, they talked to lap dancers, they talked to showgirls. They they spent months there. And you know, Vegas to him, he's from Holland, mm-hmm. you know, was like this, whoa, you know, and the same way he felt when he came to America for RoboCop and he went to Texas to shoot Robo. And Robo in a sense is a comment on American gun culture. And he fit that in. That's why Robo's got that big-ass automatic gun. Right. You know, it doesn't just look cool. You know, that's the kind of thing Paul said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what they would give to a robot (laughs) cop in America, you know? That is what
2: they would give to a robot cop in America. Come on. To
0: shoot black people in Detroit. Yeah, Yeah. But
3: but, but don't get me wrong. He's not like like one of these European intellectuals that come over and says, oh, America. He's not like that at all. He loves Mm -hmm. America quite a bit. But he is also, the Dutch have a national habit of being like the Germans, extremely blunt and straightforward. But the Dutch are even more so. They're very realistic. It's a national trait. I've been to Holland a number of times. And at first it was off-putting. I thought people were being rude. But they're not. It's their culture. So um they are um the, uh, bodily functions, sex, violence, drugs, everyday, you know, you walk down any street in Holland and people have all their windows open and the blinds up and they live their life in front of everyone mm-hmm. because they don't care and they're of a co- they say we're not doing anything, we're just living. So you, you think of that in America it's unthinkable. You know, so Paul comes here with all that and being so intelligent and being a satirist and also like knowing irony, you know, Starship Troopers is very ironic, you know, but that flew over everyone's head when it came out. So that's just my preamble. What I'll finish. When the film (laughs) came out, all of that was completely missed. People said, oh, what a violent, horrible movie. And geez, these kids are just so paper thin and, you know where's the characters and this is so stupid and you know and no one and we frankly who made it were absolutely gobsmacked as they say in 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 the UK we couldn't believe it because we thought it was so obvious that by being so over the top that you know it was a satire
2: yeah i were i always look at critic reviews of the time and i i read some of them last night and i was just like Wow. And I read everyone from like the small town, like my local Star Tribune in Minneapolis, shout out to Ebert, Roger Ebert. Right. And I was just like, it was such a, there were a couple of them who kind of caught on to what was going on. Like even Roger Ebert didn't really, like they just couldn't, it seemed too impossible and too implausible that Verhoeven could make this and actually be going for that like it felt like they just couldn't believe that a director would have such a strong statement and be so obvious about it yeah and it, it's great that's why it's so good and
3: it's a and you know it's also a hell of emotion it's fun too you know yes. it's crazy paul loves action he loves movement but, you know, yeah, um, there was a famous piece in the Washington Post that came out that said that Paul Verhoeven is a fascist.
2: Yes, I read that and one. And we all went, wait a minute,
3: what is wrong with people? This is two hours of anti-fascism, you know? Yeah. And it was yeah. even worse in Europe. Oh, my, they really went after him. Casper Van Dien was doing a promo visit, I think it was in Italy, and while they were doing the assembled journalist interviews, one of the guys said, okay... All right, that's great, Casper. And Casper said, you know, well, you know, really, we're this is not a fascist picture. And they said, okay, but for the cameras,
1: would you please give us a Nazi salute? Wow. It must be Italian. Wow. That's crazy.
2: No, yeah. after just spending how many months making an anti-fascist film? Exactly. And sure every, you know? every, that everybody on set knew this is what we're going for. And here. if,
3: you know, now people get it. You know, a lot of people anyway. But back then, it was people just... Took it on superficial face value. They didn't get why everyone was so shallow and so perfect. It was because it was a genetically engineered society where you were supposed to look like that. How did they end up with Jake Busey? Well, he was sort of like a gene gone bad, I guess. I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jake. I
3: hope he doesn't listen to this because I really like Jake. But he's such
2: a great actor. Let's give it up for Jake Busey.
0: Yeah, he is. He'll, get, he'll, he'll be able to yell at me. I hope he does listen to this.
3: He's got those family teeth, though, for sure. Oh, man. Oh, uh, well, yeah. But Jake was Jake was good. I mean, and they all were of a type, you know? I mean, Jake was like the buddy. If you ever see any World War II movies, there's always mm-hmm. the guy that starts off combative towards the hero and then becomes right. his best friend. Of
0: course. Right. You know? So I have to say, my, my introduction to this movie, prior to watching it for the podcast- I hadn't watched this since it came out.
2: Oh, damn.
0: So it's been a long time for me. And I didn't much care for it when it came out. And the reason for that is that I found sort of the inverse to be true among the people who I was was moving around and through at the time being... Let's see. This came out in what? Ninety.
2: Ninety-seven.
0: So I was a freshman in high school when this came out. And the people that I, that I went to school with all really took to this movie in a really strong way. Because they also missed the point. <laughs> so I know that left a bad taste in my mouth because mm-hmm. I went to school with a mm-hmm. lot of knuckleheads didn't (laughs) didn't didn't we all and and just proto-fascist jocks so that colored my my perception of the film from the start i went to college and my freshman year roommate who is also one of my co-hosts on fright pub shaggy (laughs) <laughs> One of the first things we did was talk about each other's favorite movies. And I, cause I came with like a, high, a whole trunk full of VHS to this little ass dorm room. And he brought his three favorite movies of all time on VHS. And this pretty much tells you everything you need to know about my friend Shaggy. His three favorite movies still to this day were Starship Troopers, The Crow, and Pretty Woman.
2: <laughs> it's the best collection. <laughs>
0: yeah, interesting. And he absolutely loves Starship Troopers. So mm-hmm. that's one of the things that he and I have had frequent disagreements about. I've come back to the movie for the podcast, and I rented it on Amazon. And I have to say that 90% of this movie still looks fantastic. Absolutely. Currently. So I'd love to talk about how the special effects were done because apart from the bugs being essentially filled with play-doh I'd love to talk about how the (laughs) bugs were done because they look fucking great
2: yeah that final brain bug especially whether it's CGI or real is oh perfectly gross and creepy
0: that's a big fucking vagina right like that's (laughs) a giant vagina
3: with it was called the vagina on set because it looked like both a penis and a vagina (laughs) I'm serious. I'm serious.
0: <laughs> yeah, well it was like a vagina if like if the clitoris were a stinger that could suck your brain out.
3: Well that's the that's the puh. The PE part of it.
0: (laughs) I think that's what incels think that that actually looks like and its actual purpose on the female anatomy.
3: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, it was, yeah, it was their little joke, you know, there are no two ways about it. But it was also meant to be disgusting. And since we're talking about the brain bug, the brain bug, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that Paul Verhoeven was a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. And he always thought of the brain bug as being uh, one of Lovecraft's elder gods.
2: Oh, that makes such good sense. Yes, I see that. He told
3: us that. He told us that on set, you know, and as someone who was around when they were designing the picture as well, I mean, you know that would, discussion was there from the beginning. He said, this is a God. This is someone who lives underground in the darkness and in 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 in, in, in solitude and uh, in 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 a quiet place who's actually manipulating you know galaxies and worlds and and you know and is also very ugly. And very evil, you know. And he thought that that was the most vicious bug of them all because it was intelligent and it was controlling all the other bugs. But it is a combination of both uh, Phil Tippett's and his crew's uh, really amazing stop-motion animation and uh, Amalgamated Dynamic Incorporated, which is ADI, uh, did a full-scale head. Uh, I have a picture of me with a brain bug head like, going like this, like a cabaret performer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so, they use that for uh, interacting with the uh, cast, you know, when the thing came out and hit Patrick Muldoon and, yeah, yeah. Uh, close and ups, but, but right. you know, when it comes out of the cavern and it's, it's actually being transported on the back of these flat- By the other bugs. Yeah, they were called uh, shield bugs, you know, and uh, they were actually like the courtiers. They were like the things that carried this guy around.
0: It was throwing off some supreme Jabba the Hutt vibes to me as well. in in that sense that it's like it can't really move itself so it has to have other things yeah
3: exactly but it was uh, but, but the insect it was based on was a South American grub and if you look at some of those they're huge you know they're pulpy and they're white and they have these horrible like faces like with these funny jaws and stuff there was a lot of Phil Tippett let me put it to you this way you say why were the special effects so fantastic particularly the bugs and still hold up well It was because many science fiction and special effects movies hire technicians and train them to be artists. Phil Tippett's studio, which had already been in existence for 20-some years before Starship Troopers, always hired artists and then trained them on the technical area. And so when you see, they were always at the forefront. When you, for instance, my favorite sequence is actually the attack on the Whiskey Outpost. Uh, you know, when it's that thing that looks a little bit like uh, one of the scenes from Zulu where the masses of the bugs came in and attacked mm-hmm. the fort, and you see, <laughs> mm-hmm. you see, uh, kind of
0: reminds me of uh, Bo Jester, like an old Wild Bill Wellman picture.
3: W- well, actually, what they based it on, and Paul Verhoeven being a huge film buff, was the Charge of the Light Brigade, the 1935 okay. Errol Flynn film, and yeah. it Makes they're sense. they're Yep. But um, what's interesting about that, if you look at that, if you stop, especially in 4K, just freeze a frame of those bugs outside and you will literally see glints of light from the sun on the carapaces of those bugs. And those are all done in a computer and in a very early stage of that. Phil Tippett is the same guy that did the CG dinosaurs, of course, for Jurassic Park. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And what they had done on that particular program is invent a mechanism that combines stop-motion animation, which, of course, is building detailed puppets, moving them incrementally, shooting them a frame at a time, and then incorporating that footage into the live action. They found a way to make those puppets and then slave them into a computer that would Mm -hmm. then, as they move that thing in real time, would start to build movements and splines and all kinds of skeletal structures in the computer itself. So, it would mimic the actual hand movements of that. And a lot of that was done on Starship Troopers. Whoa.
2: So, it's like early dots, early, like how they do it now? Well, yeah, motion capture, yeah,
3: mo- mocap is, 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 is a more sophisticated, uh, yeah, it's, it, right. in, in a way, it is very much so. But, of course, uh, they had to write the software for it. They had to provide all the computing power to be able to composite it. They had to then go out. And before they did that, it would be really funny, they had these devices where you could stick what looked like a big green ball on a stick out in that uh, open area there in what was called Hell's Half Acre. That's where that fort was built in Casper, Wyoming. Very interesting area. And um, they put that out there with uh, what they call helioscopes, which are sun measuring devices. And they were literally during the day taking readings that they were putting in the computer of what the sun was doing on the landscapes. And then incorporating that into the exteriors and shadows and all that of the
1: bugs. And that makes a ton of sense because that's one of the first things that looks fake in cheap CGI is that lighting, reflections, and shadows look different than Mm -hmm. even the other characters, the real live characters on screen, right? That's one of the big faults. A lot of motion capture doesn't look this good.
3: No. No.
2: Like Avengers movies, like oh, I was reminded, yeah. <laughs> well, while well, I was watching the scene where the bugs are swarming, I I was reminded of this scene in Infinity War, right outside Wakanda, where all mm-hmm. of these soldiers are swarming. And I was like, this looks at least as good, at least as good as that. And this was made 20 years before. 20,
3: it's almost 25 years now, yeah. Well, actually it is 25 years, yeah, because we shot in 96 primarily.
1: And I think Paul hit it right on the money because we, when we did uh, the first Terminator on this show, I brought up the difference because I've done an episode on on my other podcast about Metropolis. And we were comparing the stop motion animation of the first Terminator endo, uh, the scene in the hallway where it's all stop motion, compared to the stop motion of the city vehicles in Metropolis. And I think when you said one production is hiring artists to do technical jobs as opposed to the other way around and putting the budget you know putting the money where it belongs i mean you could tell the difference between 1927 Mm. and 1985 because the stop motion in metropolis looks better than the stop motion in terminator one and i think this is another case of them really pumping the budget in the right place and hiring the right people to do that work but i had a follow-up question about this for you paul because it could be a critique of the film but i don't know it depends on your answer so especially like in the Whiskey Alpo scene where they, where they first show up or at the end when they're trying to evac and the bugs are still pouring over. While the bugs and everything looks so great and so realistic and all the close-up injuries of the soldiers and all the stuff that they did with practical effects looks great, the dummies look about as bad <laughs> as the ones from Terminator 1. You mean, you mean
3: the corpses that are lying around?
1: The corpses of the humans, yeah. And so as I was watching, I was thinking in my head, okay, either they made an executive decision that 90% of the effects budget already went to the bugs. And so we're just going to do what we can with the, but with the puppets, or it was part of the satire because it did make you feel like these dead human bodies were very plastic. Look, you can almost smell the plastic. Whereas the bugs were super live and real feeling both when they were alive and when they were being killed. So I couldn't tell whether it was intentional or whether it was a result of the budget. What do you think? Well, and the farmer Hick, when he
0: gets Captain the head during that training exercise. That head is fake as hell. But
2: for me, that almost works better because it does. It like these are these are very plastic people. That That's we're what looking I was thinking. At. Yeah, like it feels like it's supposed to be that way.
1: Right?
3: And, you know that would be. How can I say this? Um, that would that would be that would be a, a very complimentary way of thinking about it.
0: I was going to say that's a that's a that's a smart answer for Verhoeven to give at a Q uh, and A. Q&A. Uh, but
3: I think uh, I think as you hit the nail on the head, it's one of the reasons why you did not see from Heinlein's novel the power armor or the drop capsules, uh, which are very prominent in the book. Uh, the power armor are exoskeletons, very similar to Iron Man's suit, which came out, incidentally, the comic book two years after... Starship Troopers. It almost feels
2: like Halo, if you've ever played the video game Halo. Mm -hmm. Like Uh, it feels like they based it exactly on how Heinlein describes it in the book. And
3: Jim Cameron has it said, you know, more than once that um, the uh, power loaders that you see in Aliens are based on, in part, on you know the power armor from Starship Troopers. And there's a lot of Starship Troopers and Aliens. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got Marines going out to like kill. And there's even one point where
1: he says, "Is this another bug
3: hunt?"
2: Yes, I remember. And where does that right.
3: line come from? Right, they never say bug at any other time in the film.
1: Right. That man, that is that is when we talk about all the time. Yeah, well, that was aliens. intentional.
3: That was intentional. But uh, the 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 quick answer is yes. Uh, it was an, There was a. Um, Decision made early on because Paul actually wanted to go with a lot of the drop uh, ships, a lot of the drop capsules, a lot of the power armor, what they call the bounce, where the infantry were able to like have these jet propelled boots that would put them up in the air. And all of that for varying reasons, some aesthetic, some artistic, but mostly budget, it got down to we have X amount of money. What are we going to do? Are we going to concentrate on the spacecraft and the bugs, or are we going to concentrate on these other things? And I would agree that the dummies uh, were always a bit off-putting to me as well, but there were a lot of them, and I think also the fact that many of them were filmed in unforgiving uh, light. Uh, Paul is a very realistic. If you'll notice, his films are usually lit very bright and clean Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they didn't show up as well. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it would have been nice if they could have perhaps uh, devoted a bit more attention to them. But on the other hand, when you see like Mechwar and Snappy, which were the onset names for the giant real mechanical warriors that were built by ADI, in Klendathu, there are actual shots where there are full-scale Mechanical bugs in there that are to scale. And when you see one of them picking up one of the uh, uh, GIs, the mobile, the cap troopers, and he's hanging upside down and his leg falls off and eclipse that is actually full scale. That's a real wow. bug. And it's also a veteran. Uh, there are a number of veterans, An and I'm sure you know this, yes, who have become extras in films. And they usually, when they need someone who has lost a limb, They will hire them. There's a whole bunch of them that work and work quite regularly and they just put a prosthetic leg on that person and just, you know, were able to like, you know, and make it look like it dropped. As far as the violence goes in the film, again, Paul Verhoeven grew up surrounded by the most grisly real-life carnage. Another story he tells as a child, his father was walking him to school holding his hand They passed by some uh, German field soldiers in uniform the night before a a British uh, bomber had been shot down and crashed. And these soldiers were picking up the remains and putting them into buckets as they walked by. And and Paul said he never forgot that as well, you Mm -hmm. know. So, when you see the carnage that is shown in Starship Troopers... That gets back to the realism that Paul Verhoeven, uh, as a, both a, a, a Dutchman and as an artist who is committed to the truth, Paul, despite what you see as his exaggeration and over-the-top stuff, is essentially someone who is always going for the truth. And you're seeing as close as you can get to the actual horrible damage that can be done to the human body in combat. And he, that that was intentional. He said, look, I'm not going to pull back on this. You know, I'm going to show. And they kept saying, well, it's going to be an R movie. And he says, okay. And, you know, and Sony kept trying to kind of make it a PG-13, but uh, they said no. And he so said, is that why you put all the tits uh, in it? <laughs> no. Well, there's not that many. There's only- uh, no. Oh, no. No, no. There's
0: like at least eight. <laughs> there's only one sex scene. There is only one sex scene. Yeah, and that is a brief
3: flash. And it's not, and again, it's non-exploitative. No, most of them are in the shower. Right. That was to, everyone knew that people were going to say, oh, look at all the naked people who are also cute. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the point of that. The point of that was to show that this was a sexually egalitarian future where the men and the women were absolute
1: equals. When it and came racially to as well. I noticed they made Absolutely. a point to always show a lot of diversity in the, soldier, yeah. in the in the mobile infantry. You see that a lot.
2: Which is not true in the book. In the book, there are no women in the mobile infantry; it's only men. Oh no! And uh, w- which wouldn't you would never see? Yeah, they wouldn't have published that story at that time.
3: And that is also a part of Dutch culture. In Dutch culture, uh, there is no difference other than the obvious reproductive and you know roles that uh, women play as mothers between men and women. They they are they are raised uh, as equals, and so that is a reflection of actual Dutch heritage. If you go in and you look about that, or go just go over there you'll see, you know. I mean, men and women still have that dynamic, you know, who's on top, who's on the bottom, yes, dear, no, dear, you know. I mean, all these silly things we talk about, that is all around the world. But a lot of that is is kind of hardwired and the biological urges and so forth and so on. I know I'm getting into kind of territory that people might attack me for. (laughs) But I've always been someone who, I was raised in Asia, uh, and uh, has tra- have traveled extensively, not only for work but for my own education. And I have always felt that there is no difference between men and women. We are both people. Yes, we have our hormonal, and our and our bodies are different. Which in turn shapes our thinking. But uh, honestly, on the whole, I see us as, you know, when the scales of justice, you see it, they're, they're equal. It's a balance. I've always felt that.
2: Right. I feel like there, there's a bigger difference individually between the gender groups, between like one side of the woman spectrum and one side and the other side sure. than there is between men and women as a general groups. That's.
3: Well, we live, unfortunately, we live in a world of increasing, uh, I won't even say fragmentation, I will say atomizing is what the word I would use for today's 21st century. Um, There was a book called Future Shock written by a fellow named Alvin Toffler in 1970, and he predicted 50 years before it happened, the fragmentation of culture by the internet, there was a, there was a chapter in there that said communications, modern communications. And it was all about modern communication. This is nineteen seventy now. All right. We're still got rotary phones and black and white TVs, colors still coming in. You gotta get up to turn the channel. Computers you know. still
2: filled an entire room at that yeah, point. Yeah,
3: exactly. And no one had one except maybe, you know, the government or yeah, you know, Fed. some corporations. Yeah. But um even then He was saying that communications are improving and technology is moving at such a fast clip that because humans are social animals, and that's one of our driving instincts, there are going to be these massive technological leaps that are going to result in incredible advances in communication, both over traditional and non-traditional ways. And he said, but contemporary thought is that that will bring us all closer together as a world. He said that absolutely not. The opposite is going to be true. This is going to allow each tribe to form its own tribe separate from the other tribe and not have to ever have any kind of exchange with the other tribe, that all these tribes would proliferate into sub-tribes who never communicated with each other and only fed upon your own tribe. And it would just keep doing this to the point where there was just thousands and thousands of these not uh, connected tribes but at the same time, um, warring groups to a certain extent. Because if you want to be a fan of Starship Troopers, you can go to a Starship Trooper site, but you can find the anti-Starship Troopers site. Or you can go, you can be a troll, or you can be a content provider, as they call it. I hate that phrase. I'm not a content provider. I'm a writer, okay? Um, <laughs>
2: I know I your struggle, that. Paul. I hate that shit too. Uh, I, it's not a
3: struggle, you know, I just- We're out here yeah, slinging
0: yeah. tent and you're just you know, saying no more content you know, providers. No, <laughs> no, me, I, no,
2: I, <laughs> when I was writing for the internet, I had to deal with that of being called a content provider. I was like, you know, I'm just writing. I'm just putting stuff into my word processor.
3: Oh, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse, you know? I mean, there's no, there's no, there's never been a worse business that has so little regard for its raw materials than the entertainment business. Because if you don't have a story you don't have everything else. And who gets treated the worst unless you're a showrunner? The writer. Mm-hmm. The one person who envisions it all.
0: It's always been that way.
3: Uh, yeah. I, I know. And I, it's uh, you know and it's just gotten worse, believe me. As someone who is you know still work, I just had a, a, a you know uh, an NDA sent to me about working with some group and uh, Ooh, tell well, us all
0: about that. Uh, <laughs>
3: let, let me put it to you this way: um, as someone who uh, worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Clint Eastwood and crafted international uh, marketing jobs, and uh, actually sued a studio and has been sued and uh, have grappled with uh, very high end uh, legal problems and for the most part, emerged victorious, bloodied, certainly, but still on my feet. It has gotten just ridiculous. Uh, This NDA I got was kind of a boilerplate, and it not only wanted to have complete control of everything that I did with them and complete uh, gag orders on everything I did with them now, but anything in the future and anything I'd ever written in the past, if it had anything mentioned with them, That was no longer mine and I had to get that off the table. And I read that and I went, what crap, you know, this is like it become this alternate dimension. And the sad thing is, is people will sign those. And you Mm -hmm. know, I tell writers all the time, it doesn't matter if you have an agent, it doesn't matter if you're a business person, read your contracts.
2: Yeah. And if you don't understand something, get a lawyer.
3: Exactly. And if or, or go online. There are many resources where you can, you know, find out what's good for you and what's not. But don't put your name to something because you're, you know, you, you're in a rush to, you know, to 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 be out there. It, believe me, get in the habit early on of being skeptical and being thorough, and it will serve you in the end. I read contracts, I get contracts sometimes that are like this, and I'm not a lawyer. And, you know, and I read it before my agent does, and I will mark it all up and I'll send it to my agent and mm-hmm. I'll say, here we go. What do you think? And nine times out of 10, she comes back and says, this is better than I would have done. And that's not, <laughs> the, I never took a business class, but it's because I was in the arena. I know how the gladiators fought. I knew how you were, you know, suited up. I knew what happened after you were dragged off the sands and put into rehab. I know all that. You know, so it's hard one so for for whatever reason that came up, I always tell people who are creatives, and I hate that word too creatives. It artists. sounds like They're yeah artists. exactly, well, creative sounds like a flavor at Baskin Robbins, you know, or <laughs> Ben and Jerry's or something, but I always tell them I say, you can have more control over your destiny than you think. And it's difficult to step up and it can be unpleasant and no one likes to be confrontational or fight, but there's a difference between being confrontational and protecting yourself.
2: Right, exactly.
1: While we're on tangents, I just because I, I can't keep this story to myself and neither Dan of my partners have heard hear it. it and neither has the audience, I have to ask Paul, speaking of intense characters since you brought him up. Please tell the story of when you first met Arnold Schwarzenegger because it's. A movie.
3: <gasps> oh. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> well, at that time, um, Br- let's I- do
1: it briefly, and then we'll get back to Starship Troopers.
3: Okay, I know. <laughs> I'm glad you said briefly. <laughs> I was already aware of Arnold's career arc. I'd seen, you know, uh, stay hungry. And I'd seen I'd seen Hercules in New York when it first yes! came out. 1970. Arnold strong, right? Whoa. Yeah, exactly. And with a dubbed voice. And, um, anyway, um, I, crazy. And, I, and as someone who, <laughs> uh, has been, uh, I'm not an Ivy tower intellectual. I, I, I like to think of myself as moderately intelligent and well-educated and traveled and sophisticated and all that. But I'm also someone who's very physical and, uh, I'm 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 i anyway and I had been in a lot of gyms in my time and I was aware of his muscle and fitness phases and all this
1: and for the audience picture Paul right now as a younger man with about the most competitive mustache to Tom Selleck's that I can possibly imagine so just <laughs> just just to set up a I love that
3: here. that was sort of my uh, <laughs> that was my uh, not so uh, um, subtle uh, can I curse here? Sure, oh, Fuck
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah.
3: Well, that was my fuck off to the uh, industry too. I mean, I've always, I've, you know, um, I always, I've tried to maintain my individuality. Sometimes to my uh, well, let's say it hasn't worked out so well. But, but let's just say I used to wear that mustache as a badge of honor. Because I was blending in, I was trying to be a chameleon in the industry, and believe me, that you have to blend. But on the other hand, I would do things like wear these really uh, pretty hard to ignore facial adornments. And uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, at that point, um, I had been, I already worked within the industry for on and off for about 10 years, but really during the 70s, it was very fringy. And uh, But by 78, uh, I brought down uh, the black hole to Comic-Con in 1978, so I was one of the first of what they now call the genre marketers, and I did that for 10, 12 years. It's another phase of my life. I, I, I'm a huge Conan the Barbarian. It's not Conan, by the way. It's Conan. Conan mm. with an E. Exactly. Think of it that way. And uh, uh I had read all the Robert E. Howard short stories and I'd read the Barry Smith, uh, Barry Windsor Smith, the Marvel comics in the 70s and, you know, the Lancer paperback. Like I'd be a huge Conan fan and also a big John Milius fan because John Milius was so over the top in his movies. You know, like Dillinger and The Wind and the Lion and all that type of thing. Anyway, so um, I got uh, sort of assigned and was kind of sniffing around to see if I could get a job on a film on Conan. And so I find myself uh, first in Madrid, Spain, where they had just started production and uh, the publicist says come on in and, and meet arnold and um i was i had done my homework and i knew that ron cobb was the illustrator and through uh my connections in the states i was able to see some of the pre-production art read the script i i already knew a lot about conan before i met arnold and went on set and uh, i find myself in madrid outside of an abandoned tractor factory that Dino had leased out as a soundstage and it was freezing and dusty I remember that and they were shooting the orgy chamber sequence and um, that was a that was a great way to be introduced to the world of first cinematic adaptation um and Arnold <laughs> had that uh, uh, camouflage makeup on that he wears mm-hmm. with the, the, the black stripes. And they were shooting that. And when I came in, I'd missed the morning shoot because I was being, uh, I was talking to Raffaella De Laurentiis, the producer, and a couple of other people. Arnold <laughs> is in his trailer, and it's a break. And they say, come on. And, and I go in, and Arnold's sitting at his little table, and he's surrounded by his entourage. And uh, the publicist goes, oh, you should know this guy. This guy is Paul Salmon. And, and, and at that point, I already had sort of a name in terms of being a film journalist. And uh, he goes, yeah. And, uh, and and he goes, yeah. And I go, yeah. And he goes, uh, Salmon, huh? He goes, well, that's a very fishy name for a journalist. And I <laughs> stared at him. And I, the first thought that went through my head was, I am 31 years old, and this man really thinks that I haven't heard every possible variation (laughs) and put down on my name, and this is the best he can come up with. And I kind of like looked at Arnold, and I said, oh, he's one of these guys who likes to test you. And I thought to myself, well, what can I lose? I'm, I'm here as a journalist. All they can do is throw me out of Spain. And so I looked at him and I said, That's very funny coming from someone who looks like a demented Austrian raccoon. (laughs) (laughs) And there was this collective gasp in the trailer. Because, oh my God, what did this guy just say to
1: the star of the show, <laughs> the most powerful guy on the movie? Also, the biggest human on the set, I would imagine. <laughs> right? No, no, Sven
2: Ole Thorson.
3: Oh, right. Sven
1: Ole Thorsen
3: could eat Arnold for breakfast. Uh, Sven was, whoa, he's like a grizzly bear. He was right. unbelievable. And so Arnold kind of gave me this puzzled look and, you know, he takes a puff. He always had those damn cigars, you know, Monte Cristo's. And he takes a puff and puts it down, exhales. He goes, you're all right. Come here. Come over here and sit down next to me. He says, you move over. And I'm sitting down next to Arnold. From that moment on, never had any trouble. We would tease each other. He would would throw one at me and I'd throw one right back. I remember we were having lunch on um, Conan the Destroyer, which I also worked on. By then, I was with Universal, and that was like one of my pictures. And I'm on location in Mexico with them and <laughs> with Grace Jones and... All of the people who were on that, and Arnold, and uh, we're all sitting around and having lunch, and Arnold looks at my plate and he goes, look at all that carbohydrates. He goes, don't you know how to eat better? And I said, don't you feel a little uh, uh, worried that you still haven't gotten your green card? You know, that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know? And and he would just stare at me, give me that look again, you know? And people would laugh, you know, and they would leave me alone, you know? But he was, but Arnold, you know, Arnold is no fool. Arnold can be very charming, and Arnold knows how to work the press. Obviously, he was always trying to, he would say things like, here, back me up on this. And I'd say, no. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it was, it was funny. And, you know, and there's a there's a picture of us uh, where I'm holding his sword with his mustache on the side of Conan the Destroyer. He's in character. And what you can't see is that my hand behind him is giving him a wedgie. <laughs> it's literally pulling up. It's, I'm trying to get him to break up for the camera. And he's like, he's in between sides. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm going, what? Do what, Arnold? You know, and, and people are laughing. And I'm, believe me, I did not make a, a big ongoing habit of this. But every now and then, you know, just to remind him, you know. And uh, I worked with Arnold on five five or six Pictures and uh, I never had any trouble with Arnold. And I was around with he and I used to go to dinner with he and Maria. And you know was there when at the time when he proposed to her. And you know and uh, you know he was telling him about his political aspirations in 1980, 1981. He said he wanted to be the president of the United States. And I said, well, you should really read the Constitution, Arnold. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and he goes. What do you mean? And I said you're not a bo- you're not an American national. He goes. Well, I can get that changed. And I said, no, no, <laughs> no, no you luck. can't. <laughs> you know what's funny
0: is they make a joke about that in demolition. Oh yeah.
3: Oh no, no. And you know, Arnold. I all props to Arnold. You know, I mean, Arnold is Arnold. And um, people, I I have met very many ambitious, extremely aggressive, intensely focused uh, people who desire fame and celebrity and money and more power to them. And uh, to a certain extent, I followed that track, but it's, and this is going to sound incredibly self-serving, but I really mean this. Um, After a lifetime, I I really have discovered that for me, it's like the old, any of the old philosophies and religions always tell you that money is the root of all evil. And I'd much rather be comfortable than rich, and I'd much rather have friends than professional hangers-ons. And I'd much rather think about how nice the day is and, you know, uh, look at that palm tree glinting in the moonlight than I would having to sit and worry who's the next person trying to knock me off the peak. You know, I'm competitive, believe me. And, you know, I've got my own built in, uh, drives, but uh, anyway, that's just me. And, uh, Arnold, I've been around a lot of, a lot of alphas, a lot of them, you know, and more power to them, but I'll tell you, a lot of them aren't happy.
1: Right.
2: I'm not surprised to hear that, honestly.
3: Yeah. Oh, there are a lot of people that say, Salmon, you're full of it. What are you? You don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's just me. It's my opinion, put it that way.
1: So, I, I did want to bring a couple of military things about the film because we have a portion of the crowd here that's veterans and military, et cetera. Of course. I was surprised. Paul mentioned this offline before we started, but I think it's going to be great information for the listeners. And uh, speaking of Marines, there was a couple of Marines involved in the making of this show that aren't really are either undercredited or I, I couldn't find them. So we're taking Paul's word for it. But
3: uh, <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. Captain Dale Dye, the same fellow who, uh, you know, did... I, I was involved in Platoon and flown to the Philippines mm-hmm. for Orion Pictures to do the behind-the-scenes making of on that. And um, Captain Dye did uh, the uh, boot camps for the actors that he became famous for on that film. And he also did one on uh, a much a larger one for Starship Troopers. And Casper Van Dien, Denise Richards, Patrick Muldoon... Uh, Neil Patrick Harris, um, all of them uh, were, you know, sleeping out in a, ve- they were out in Hell's Half Acre.
2: And here, I, I just want to interrupt for a second to sure, say, right. like, I, I read something about an interview with Denise Richards about this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she said she wasn't obligated because she she was the space person. She was the pilot. She, she wasn't obligated to go to the boot camp, but she mm-hmm. did it anyway. And there was a blizzard first night or something there was yeah and she ended up going and jake and casper van Deen, jake Busey, and casper van Deen were tent mates and she ended up going into their tent and they all slept snuggled together to stay warm that night
3: oh yeah no hell's half acre was aptly named i mean um and i'm sure jake and
0: casper absolutely hated that i'm sure terrible time for them
3: (laughs) you guys know when you're out on the field and you're under those conditions the last thing on your mind is sex That's
0: true. Yeah, but you're also not normally around Denise Richards either.
3: Also true. Well, that's true. That's
2: true. (laughs) And she was at her top form.
3: Right. Denise was actually quite sweet. I liked Denise. She was uh, down to earth. And uh, if you ever watched that horrible, uh, you know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills which I I have to admit and confess that for a year of lockdown, I suddenly started to watch Bravo with my wife. <laughs> oh my! And it's been it's been horrible. I can't get away. It's no. it's it's worse than crack. I can't help it. You know, <laughs> it's there's below decks. There's the Real Housewives of Sunset Boulevard. The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Anyway, Denise, um, yeah, she was Denise was twenty five years old and she was uh, she was quite sweet and down to earth and uh, not not a handful. Uh, Dina Meyer was quite the opposite, <laughs> but
1: uh, <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> Whoa, <shade. laughs>
3: a little bit, you know, it was just Dina was,
1: she was difficult. She was know? good though. I liked her
3: performance. Oh, she was a great actor. And you know, uh, many directors from the earliest silent period have said this right up to now that 95% of performances in casting and it's true. You know, I've been in a lot of, watched a lot of casting sessions from I have a Blade Runner, for instance, and many others. And uh, if they cast the right person, you know, there they are, you know, and they bring a lot of themselves. Yes, they are performers and they're able to put on different personas, but mm-hmm. that core person, you know, there's a reason why they get hired. Not only because they look like it, but they can
1: be that person, right? And she was she was famously the source of Verhoeven and everybody else having to get naked during the shower scene because she said, well, you know, they were resisting that scene. And she was like, well, how would you like it? Well, it
3: was American, you know, American Puritanism runs deep. You want to hear one of, uh, one of the interesting theories I have? You know, uh, a common slang word for genitalia these days is junk. Mm-hmm. Now, why would you call your genitals junk? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, think about that. Well, maybe because we had Puritans who were in big control, and we still have, in many ways, kind of an anti-sexual undercurrent in this country where we're afraid of sexuality and kind of think of it as something and you know i just find it fascinating that i see it manifesting itself in all ways and i think one of the ways it manifested itself was in the shower scene if you were in europe nobody would have cared Because in Europe, you're raised – and in in Asia, you know, like Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, you know, any of those places. You see nudity early on, and it's just no big deal. We all look the same with our clothes off.
2: And especially for taking a bath. Like if you're bathing, like public bathhouses are a thing everywhere, but here. Or
3: or in the Philippines. I remember one of the strangest sights I ever saw. I was riding – I was a little boy, and I was riding what they call a jeepney, which is one of these converted army jeeps that are all festooned with all these colors and trinkets. And they're they're like local taxis. And we're going down the streets of a little town called Cavite, uh, outside of Sangley Point. And uh, <laughs> there's a woman walking by who's probably in her 50s, but to me, it looked ancient because I was a boy. And she held she was holding a small pig in her arms, and she was naked from the waist up, and the pig was suckling. Whoa. Whoa! No, I'm serious. I'm That's serious. Crazy. So, you know, with that in my head... With that much, exactly, you know, and then we got to eat the pig. Uh, and uh, it all goes around, doesn't it? Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> the circle so with, of life. Uh, exactly. And, and death. And so, um, and, and basically, you know, that's another thing about humans, you know, we try to keep it at arm's length, but we're the apex predator. And how do we survive? By consuming other species. And that's everywhere. That's the natural world, you know. I'm not, I don't, I don't romanticized nature i love it i think it's beautiful but as jack london said it is red of tooth and claw you know and that's the human part of warfare and violence and all that and yeah, very know? much in this it.
1: film to be honest oh yeah, yeah absolutely
3: and that's one of the that's one of the emphases that goes throughout this paul verhoven is hitting that button he's saying see how people are see how people are see how they can be so easily manipulated the propaganda that runs throughout that film is swallowed whole you know you never see the bug side of things. Mm. It's always, you know, the Earthman side. And Verilla, there's a plant early on when it says, Mormon missionaries who were warned not to go into, right. you know, and that that it, in a way is saying, you know, what the humans are trying to do is be the typical imperial expansionism. They're going out and they're going to take over and spread no matter who's in their way, right?
0: Well, I also think it was interesting that the call out of the the... I don't think that they were Mormon missionaries. I think it said that they were like
1: they were uh
0: extremists. Extremists.
3: Yeah, like there's nothing extreme about being a Mormon, but there
0: you go, you know. <laughs> 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 I think it depends. Like there's a there's some bloody history to the formation of Mormonism as well, but like but yeah, I got the the feeling that Religion in general in this world, just like from that was like the, the religion as a whole was either like controlled or there was one that was acceptable and others were not that like they had to go off into dangerous territory, mm-hmm. much like the pilgrims mm-hmm. to to go do their own religious thing. Is that something that was, that was in the production?
3: No, it was still, it was sort of as an example. Um, it was a throwaway. Uh, they were, uh, uh, but I think the underlying point was that there was still this kind of like a frontier attitude going on on Earth that, you know, we want to take over. We want to go to another place. And if there is an indigenous life form or people there, we want to demonize them and we want right. to conquer them
2: the yeah. colonialist slash imperialist
3: and we want to and colonists right and you know and that was all part of the of the larger fascist f- framework
1: i feel like you can hear the word labens realm like being whispered in the background you know it's never mm-hmm. said out loud but you can feel it
3: oh absolutely yeah and 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 the FedNet sequences are flat-out propaganda
1: Young people from all
3: over the globe are joining up to fight for the future.
1: I'm doing my part.
3: I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part.
1: I'm doing my part, too.
3: (laughs) (laughs) They're doing their part. Are you joining You know, and uh, you never hear any, there's one point in the film where there's like supposed to be a discussion going on between pro and con about a brain bug. You know, remember and mm-hmm. uh, that and, and that's at one point, you know, they, and he says, well, maybe there is a brain bug and maybe we do. They do feel like, you know, we've unnecessary and, and you know, that she's someone's foot gets stamped on. And, you know, and also um, there's the guy who is the FedNet broadcaster who gets ripped apart at the beginning. When he's on the Ticonderoga battle station later in the film, which is, a, you know, part of the flashback, when he's interviewing them as they're going in to get tattooed, and he says, some people say that, you know, the bugs are actually defending themselves and, you know, that, you know, against the Hasa. What do you think about that?
2: I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say, kill them all. Yeah!
3: yeah! And that's the mindset, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And
2: it, earlier in the film, it shows, but right before Rico graduates, when he's talking to his teacher... His teacher asks him if he understands um, why violence is the solution or something along those (laughs) lines. Yeah,
3: that that great speech.
2: And he looks at him and he goes, "Well, I don't know, sir." And it's kind of the last bit of Rico that we see that is questioning any of this stuff. Yeah. Other than his first attempt, but that uh, his first attempt to leave the mobile infantry. But that feels more shame based. This feels like the last time he really questions, like. Is what they're saying to me true?
3: hmm And there's also a student in that same class who rises at their hand and says, my mother says violence is never the solution. And he immediately says, tell that to the uh, inhabitants of Hiroshima.
2: Yes.
0: It was Diz. Yes. was uh, It was the girl. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yep.
3: Who ends up being one of the
0: <laughs> biggest One of the most gung-ho. Room. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know. Can we get back, get back to the shower scene very quickly? Sure,
0: sure. By all means, I would love to.
3: <laughs> at that point, you know- um, Uh, One of the things that I don't think, uh, and uh, civilians know, and I don't mean in the military sense, but people who aren't either in the entertainment, uh, either in the film or the theatrical business, is there's a great deal of uh, proximity and intimacy, both emotional and physical, that is a byproduct of those businesses. For instance, in theatrical groups, you know, everybody is sleeping with everybody all the time. It's round robin. It's because you are just slammed together.
2: Liam is this accurate? Yeah,
3: that's actually 100% accurate. <laughs> and so and so but in America even though that happens and it happens certainly on film productions there are lots of set what they call set romances that as soon as the movie is over so is the romance. James Cameron we we call them a showman's
2: a showman's. That's awesome. Now
3: we're treading into litigious territory. And I, I I've already had enough of that in my life. Thank you. Even having said that, um, there still was this basic shyness, uh, you know, of of you know uh, them all being naked, and and Ver- Verhoeven, you know, was challenged, and he just stared at them, and he said, "What's the problem?" And they said, "Well, we're naked. How come you're not naked?" And he goes. He looks over and Vacano, who is the DP on that, who has shot a lot of Paul's film and is a German, he goes, "Yost, these, 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 our cast is uncomfortable." And he goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "Yeah." And he says, "Here, follow me, Yost." And he just drops his pants and takes his underwear off and starts yeah. taking the cup. You know, Paul and and they all go and they all just laughed. And then Yost did it too. And so you know, and they just said, "Okay, you know, here we are. You ready to go?" And the, and, the, and the cast just broke up, but it also broke the ice because they realized they weren't being exploited. And, you know, this guy just had this attitude, so what? What's the big deal? You know? And that was the whole point of the scene. So, that was actually a, a good bit. Um, I mean, he was being genuine, Paul was, but it was also a good bit of directorial psychology, you know, to get people to mm-hmm. understand, mm-hmm. you know, this was no big deal.
2: That's one of the things, honestly, that I love most about Verhoeven's filmmaking is how he really reaches for that egalitarianism always like with his um one of his more recent movies L
3: wonderful film
2: oh so good and it's elizabeth hoopere is that who's in uh, that isabel hoopere isabel hoopere thank you mm. is is just fantastic but verhoven very much strives to find the difficult points in society and really pick them apart he's always been that way like with that shower scene, he's willing to go, and if it takes it, like okay, I'll take my clothes off, whatever. If that's what makes everybody comfortable, like the fact that he's willing to both walk the walk as well as talk the talk, if you will, mm-hmm. is such a uh, such a reason. I just like him. I just can't. I, I can't dislike Paul Verhoeven for anything because he just he cares and he's so sincere in his filmmaking. Yeah, he
1: comes off genuine.
3: He, he, oh, yeah, there's nothing There's nothing fake about Paul Verhoeven.
2: Right. I like Showgirls because he was like, well, you know, I usually do these very, you know, sci-fi or these very political films. Well, now I'm going to examine this experience from for, that women so often go through. And he does it in a way that's, especially in the 90s, is actually pretty respectful, is meant in a sincere and... Dedicated way Like he wants To give this experience To his audience And that he does that Comes through In every single film And Starship Troopers Is the same way Even when I was 16 when I first watched this and had no fucking idea what was going on.
3: Did you like it, Starship, when you first I saw it? it? I loved
2: it. I loved it. Because I was like, this is crazy. And look, there's ladies on screen doing the things just as much as the men. And oh, then, yeah. <laughs> I watched it regularly throughout the years. And then as I got older, I started to understand, like, oh, I see what he's going for here. But I've always loved the movie from the beginning because Verhoeven made it accessible to everybody.
3: Oh, absolutely.
2: It isn't just white men that are on screen. It's all kinds of different people and they all get to be heroic even as much as this is such an indictment of fascism. He still offers that for everyone. It's
1: an egalitarian fascist society, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's again, it's it's a fascist society that works.
3: I mean, right. and 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 you know, and that was kind of the challenge because they actually built that in. You know, they you know, yes, it's anti-fascist. But if you look at it, you know it's genetically pure. You know they 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 have very little crime. You know everyone seems to be in harmony. You know there's a balanced population. You know people live very well. You know, and so in that sense, you know it's very successful. But it's the mechanisms, the controls right. that are taking that that way that are very suspect. Let me let me say one thing about the shower scene. If you saw RoboCop, there was a rehearsal for that. There's a very brief tracking shot when Murphy is, first goes in as Peter Weller, as Murphy goes into mm-hmm. the Metro, you know, uh, the locker room. station. Yes. And in the background, you see men and women, you know, changing and there's nudity and nobody's paying attention. And so that's in there, too. So he's, you know, and if you've seen his uh, Dutch films, go to go to look at Spedders or look at, you know, The Fourth Man. Or go look at Soldier of Orange, or go look at you know the Black Book, which he made you know you know after he left America. You know the women in there are all extremely strong characters, you know, and uh, or even showgirls. Showgirls is about this mystery figure with the name No Me, No What, No right? You, No know Me, No You. You know, I mean, with this uh, symbolic name who goes in and actually is, she is the one who is total control of her destiny, who uses her sexuality to go to the very top and then sees the corruption and the, the bad behavior and what happens to someone who is not as cynical and as hardened as her, that rape of her friend, turns her completely around and she jettisons it. And then she goes to Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which always cracked me up about that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, again, layers in that film.
1: I think, uh, I think for time, we're going to want to do our conclusion soon, especially so we don't hold Paul up too much, but I, I'd, I'd be remiss to not kind of comment on, since we're talking about fascism, we're talking about the political themes and how this society works. And, um, while Katie probably ha of the four of us has certainly read the book, the most recently, um, I was reading a lot about the sort of critical analysis of the book and comments that Heinlein had made, and I found it really fascinating that while he wrote the book quickly, like a lot of his other work, he did, wrote it in a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. When asked about it, when asked about this fascist aspect, because both Verhoeven and Heinlein in the book show you a society where there are civilians- And then there are citizens, and to be a citizen and to have the right to vote, you have to perform two years of federal service. Now, interestingly, both the book and the film show most of this service as the mobile infantry or at least the military in some kind of way. But when questioned about this, Heinlein said, well, that's actually not what I meant. What I've pictured was military service was just a small part of that. And that's a very interesting idea because not being a right-wing person or a fascist myself... (laughs) This is actually an idea that I've had for a long time, though, is that because I grew up in Italy, where a one-year conscription up until a few years ago was normal, and -hmm. that didn't mean you had to join the military, but you had to do some kind of year or service. So you could work in an ambulance, you could work in, you know, there's lots of different things you could do. You certainly were not made to be a warrior or anything like that. And I've always thought about that and said, now, me personally, I would not make voting contingent upon it, so I would give everyone the right to vote. However... The idea of a mandated civil service of some sort where you're forced to be in a position where you have to think of others and society ahead of yourself, especially at a young age, is a really fascinating concept. Uh, Again, I would never support a draft or forcing people into the military, but I think... Oftentimes, you see people who have, for one reason or another, they were well off or whatever. They've never done any kind of service like that. And again, there's many different ways, volunteering, you know, helping homeless people, starting a volunteer theater. Like There's many, many iterations of this. But putting others ahead of yourself in some kind of way teaches you a lot of lessons. And so every time you read a black and white comment about either Heinlein or this film where it's like, oh, it's definitely fascist or it's 100% satire in this way. I think there's really a lot of layers here that have to be examined, I know we don't have time to get into all of that here, but I found that just batting around the ideas between the book and the film and what each creator, each artist in this case, decided to put in the final product was super interesting. I don't know. I'm sure Paul knows. I don't know if you guys caught the very small line of the, there's another, the white short-haired female character. I can't remember her name. I think she was a red.
0: I think she was in Swingers. She wanted to have a baby.
1: Right. And did you notice what she said about that? Yeah, she said she had to get a certificate. She had to get a license. Yeah, exactly. She had to go to some kind of training to have a child.
0: It's easier to get a license if you... If you've done military, if you've done your federal well, service. Well,
3: yes, and service guarantees citizenship, which mm-hmm. was, you know, the, the slogan there. But, you know, while the, you brought up a number of interesting points, um, uh, let me say also, which has not been brought up, that Paul was in the military. He was in mm. the Dutch Royal Marines. Oh, okay. And yeah, and so he, uh, I think, became eventually a lieutenant and at a young age. And oh. <laughs> uh, Paul being Paul, uh, he he actually was able to mobilize the entire Dutch Marines and do training films and have like things like landing craft and their one or two destroyers or whatever in tanks and and as a young man that's what he was doing. he was doing these training things for the military so he was learning that was a part of his apprenticeship so he he knows the military he's been in the military
1: mm-hmm.
3: the whole concept of well you know as far as the concept of today's American society perhaps, Having an absence of a more widespread, either mandated or uh, voluntary uh, system of being of service to others. Uh, really, again, is there no is there nothing that's more noble than putting your putting someone else ahead of you? You know, of being of service. I mean, God—that's that's one of the key cornerstone precepts again of so many religions. Take the you know the Judeo-Christian tradition. Take the Bible: A man has no greater love than he laid down his life for his brother, right? And so that's hard wired into us as well. We're social animals, and we're here to help each other out. Unfortunately, and we get back to Alvin Toffler and the internet. The internet has made it very easy for us to just sit. And not do anything and just have these active imaginations that engage through digital worlds without the physical challenges of going out and being involved with people face to face and the uncertainties of that and humans are very unpredictable you think you can know someone for i've been married for 46 years to the same woman and i'm very fortunate but the pandemic we were we were showing sides of ourselves that we both went whoa i didn't know that about you and i could (laughs) not be as close to this person as i am to my wife so I, i only say that to say that you know I always tell people that you will be a much more well-rounded and much more tranquil human being if you get out of your own way, get out of your own ego, go and get involved with someone else's problems and see what happens. And not in a way where you say, well, I'm going to fix you, but go out and, you know, it's so simple. You can do something like just drop off food at one of these food collection things or you know like pick up some trash on the street
2: mm-hmm. you're providing support
3: exactly well you do- you you you're doing a service you know and when it comes to military service as someone again my mother was in uh, civil service her entire life and got to be a G13 I think it was and so I know that whole thing I know the government I know the military I know I know police I know I, I when I say I know it was just my background as a child I, that was my childhood so I know the mechanisms that drive this culture. And the uh, mandatory draft, the problem with that was that it, it was very slanted towards pulling people in of limited uh, educational and economic resources and kind of like focusing on them. All right. That, that the problem is, is that the old mandatory draft that we had in the United States was skewed. And uh, and you even see it in movies like Platoon. He even brings it out. He says, you know, the kind of people that he found in the military, and which I came across a lot of times, were people who came from small towns and diminished backgrounds. And that was their chance to get out of that and, you know, get into a different world where they could learn a trade or, you know, BC the world or whatever. And that no longer exists. So, It really gets down to the whole concept of a military, doesn't it? Because at heart, the warrior culture is what the military is all about. And to be a warrior, you have to learn to kill. That is essentially what being a warrior means. And you can talk about defense, absolutely. Being a warrior means being defensive and making sure that you are not involved uh, in in preventing violence from happening. But bottom line, all the military is about weaponry hand-to-hand combat, discipline, so that you learn how to follow orders and act in units and not be an individual, and essentially, from the beginning of human civilization, learning how to protect your tribe against the other tribe. And that opens up so many different ideas, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. is this some primitive development of our growth as Homo sapiens? Is this something that we will never lose since we're descended from hominids? And, you know, it's only been recently that they found out chimpanzees eat other chimpanzees. We didn't know that 20 years ago, you know? And so it's always this, Jesus, it's like nothing is simple, you know? And so the whole idea of service, I, th- I could not agree with what you said more, Dan. I really do think, and Liam, what you uh, uh, alluded to, I think it is important to be of service at some point in your life. To put aside your own world and go into a world that you may find uncomfortable, but ultimately helps someone else. That is the basis of our entire world. As soon as we start fucking with that, and the whole thing starts to unravel. And we've been seeing that big time, not only over the last four years. I'm not trying to get political. And because it can, you can take that from either side, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But also, this has been going on in the United States as someone who's been there since really the late 60s and the early 70s. The fissures have started to appear, and they're widening and widening and widening. It's been going on for decades. It's not doing anybody any good. So, one know? thing
0: I'll, I'll say, Paul, and not to not to cut you off, but just... a uh, an additional layer of nuance that I want to throw in there real quick, not because I think this is what you were getting to, but I want to head other people who might be listening off at the pass. And that <laughs> is that, you know, cause I agree with the, with the brunt of what you're saying, but I think that as we talk about like the decline of our culture or the problems that our culture is facing with the new technologies and the internets and the the factionalization and the ionization of our culture i think that it's very easy to lay this at the feet of the youngest generation and say you darn kids get off oh, my no lawn. no
3: no 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 i believe i wasn't saying
0: that. no absolutely but I, I i also want to just throw out there that i haven't seen any of the viral videos of young people throwing a hissy fit in walmart because they have to wear a mask Oh, yeah. Uh, Whereas like if we want to talk about service and putting other people first, like the simplest thing you could have done was to put on a mask in the Walmart. And that's somehow infringing on your right to go off into space and start a Mormon colony out in Arachnid. Occupied territory. (laughs) Occupied space. You know, like it's this, it's (laughs) kind of like what you were saying about the need that we have as a species to like, if you feel constrained by the society that you're in somehow, no matter how good it may be, you need to go off and do your own thing in your own place that isn't a part of the society or doesn't add to the, to the culture really.
3: Or doesn't upset your comfort
0: zone. Precisely. You, you don't have to challenge yourself By exposing yourself to others or to other ideas. So you go off and you form your own colony. Exactly. And I think what we've seen is that that is something that while it gets blamed on like Gen Z or however, whatever generation my kids are going to get called, it's something that I think has been around ongoing, like you're saying, at least since the 60s, that that kind of generational separation starts to happen. Well, you can go back to the 50s with the Beats. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the 50s pretty much invented the idea of the teenager.
2: Of the juvenile delinquent. Let's not forget that either. The juvenile delinquent. I remember
3: the ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. You know, yeah. that was a real movie. Yes. <laughs> Drag, dragsters in a haunted castle with a it was a terrible picture. Uh, um. or I was a, I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage Frankenstein.
2: Yep, yep.
0: Reefer Madness. Oh no. they, oh
3: God there now there's a classic. I love that movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've
3: seen that so many times. I don't want to be misunderstood that I'm one of these old farts that looks and says get off of my lawn you stupid kids <laughs> right <laughs> I'm not one of those people in fact I'm very well aware that I live in an age of society that has nothing I mean and I I kind of feel sorry for it because I see the bar moving closer I mean it's, it's gonna be like babies oh you're a month old you're so old you know I mean <laughs> it's gotten to a point where it's getting ridiculous people think I see it online I'm 30 years old my life is over oh fuck me you've got another 50 60 (laughs) years come on you know it's not it isn't over it's just starting right i believe me i i'm not your stereotypical boomer which that phrase is interesting
0: i was raised by boomers and i love them dearly and they're not your stereotypical boomers either so you're in Uh, same you're in friendly territory
3: that's all well I don't care uh, yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> there's there's a whole other aspect to all that that we can get into but but in terms of um, uh, I just want to reemphasize that I'm not saying with the fragmentation that has gone on and the uh, the increasing aggressiveness that is being displayed among all different groups is that it can be laid at the feet of any particular, generation or technology. I think it's just simply the situation that now exists. Our culture, like all cultures, are constantly evolving, and this is where we find ourselves today. So, I think some of us are starting to say, you know what, are we, are, are we really going to tear each other apart? Because if you, if you destroy the house, let's put it this way, if you want to fumigate the house and you say it's filled with evil bugs, you don't burn it to the ground, because then you have no house. And so, we seem to be at that point, and that I find that a bit <laughs> counterproductive. So I don't think that I have any animus against anyone of any age group. I am more about w- what do you do? What are your actions? Not wh- how you speak, but what do you do? So that's number one. The whole concept of a military, I am not a uh, romantic or a sentimentalist or someone who's unrealistic. As long as there have been human beings, there have been warriors, and there will continue to be warriors out of necessity and out of biological imperative. However, I do think that Perhaps at the same time, as we slowly stumble out of the dark caves of our proto-civilization, because let's face it, Western culture is only 2,000 years old. I mean, we're, we're basically still knuckle-draggers, except we're standing up and we have nicer clothes. As we <laughs> step more into the sunlight, perhaps we should find alternatives or maybe find ways of working with the old warrior cultures and maybe massaging them into something that isn't quite as stuck in some ways that it continues to be. And I'm going to get some flack for that. But I have nothing against the military. I do have a lot of problems with the politicians and the power brokers who manipulate people for their own reasons and then cast them aside. I think that the way veterans are treated on the whole is absolutely just atrocious. And I know quite a few of them and some really good friends of mine. Yes, the, the you know, the VA, I mean, the uh, VA, you know, is very helpful in some ways, but let's, we all know, you know, like it seems like you do your service and you expect things and you don't get them, you know, and I, that's shitty. That's horrible. You know, why 100%. are they doing, you know, mm-hmm. and so I'm right on board with that, man. That pisses me off. So, you know, it's a complicated issue. I just wanted to say that. So, as far as Starship Troopers itself goes, it was originally conceived to be, on the surface, an adventurous, thrilling story about an interstellar war between a futuristic society and intelligent insects as an epic motion picture. And it was designed to be an epic, and it looks like an epic, that was based on a famous novel. But it was secretly a reaction against the novel by what the people who were who made it, who were very familiar with Heinlein and his work, saw as some kind of like mm, sort of frightening aspects of the futuristic society that he put into place. And so, they said, well, maybe what uh, this book is really saying is some of the m- more violent and more repressive and more herd-following aspects of humanity that not only exist in america but exist in the world and so we're going to exaggerate it a bit and we're going to show you something that on the surface is really cool and really works but underneath it we're critiquing it we're making fun of it we're being ironic did that work no. When it came out, <laughs> <laughs> when, it didn't work at all. When it came out, people were saying, oh, this hyperviolent movie is all about Nazi glorification, you know? And all of us that were involved in it went, what?
2: <laughs> what the you know, fuck are we, you talking about? We couldn't
3: believe it. We thought it was so obvious. And we're no, we're not like, you know, uh, white-coated uh, lab technicians holding up our culture beakers and saying, oh, these stupid little microbes of the general public. We are those stupid little microbes of the general public, you know? Mm-hmm. But we got it. We thought it would be so obvious. No one got it. And so uh I think though it's it it definitely uh achieved what it set out to do and another thing it set out to do was to be a warning of what Paul Verhoeven thought America was doing at the time and what was coming and I just talked to Paul recently and I he goes you know he says the only person we didn't have in Starship Troopers was Donald Trump <laughs> Yeah, but you know what I mean? I mean, so it was like, you know, I mean, it, what he was saying, he was saying, saying, you know, think about it, you know, to a certain extent, look where we are now and look what Starship Troopers were saying. And, you know, so in, in that sense, it was very successful. But I think, I think you can look at it a whole bunch of ways. The biggest audience for Starship Troopers and the most enthusiastic, and I kept telling people this in the production after it came out, because I'm not a guy who just hangs out at screenings, although I did was fortunate enough one afternoon to sit and watch uh, Elle, Paul Verhoeven's uh, movie with Isabelle Huppert, and then meet her and hang out with her for hours after the screening right alongside Dick Miller, the iconic character actor of Roger Corman and Joe Dante.
2: Oh my God, that's amazing! And
3: that was one of the most perfect afternoons of my life. Isabelle Huppert, by the way, is cool. A very cool lady.
2: And so gorgeous, so but anyway, gorgeous. anyway,
3: I think I think it uh, I think it uh, it really appealed, surprisingly enough, to people who were in their mid-teens. They were the biggest audience. They yes. loved that movie. You know, I saw everybody's kids around me. I went to the theaters multiple times after it came out. Kids were sneaking in or coming in with their older brothers and sisters and they were kicking the back of their seats and the parents were scratching their heads and going, Nazis? And the kids were going, look at those bugs. Right. You know, so it, you know, it works on all these different levels. Almost
1: proving the point that it was trying to make in the first place. Exactly. Exactly.
3: (laughs) So it's not a simple, you know, none of Paul Verhoeven's films, uh, Well, maybe with, no, not even Showgirls. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm joking, Paul. None of Paul Verhoeven's films are exactly what you think uh, the eye is seeing, you know? But I think they work on multiple levels and uh, Starship Troopers is certainly one of the most effective. And as Liam said, holds up remarkably well, Mm -hmm. 25 years after the fact.
1: Well, that's a good final word, I think, from Paul. So... Yeah, I'll go next
0: cuz there's a couple of things I want to hit on here. What do I think the the movie is trying to say? We we've, we've discussed this at length and I and I know we have the subject matter expert except for maybe Paul Verhoeven himself here with us mm-hmm. today
3: and Ed Newmeyer, the writer.
0: Right, mm-hmm. there you go. So like top 3 subject matter experts in the world on this movie. Here with us today to tell us what the intent was, which we don't often have. So usually I'm just left to speculate whatever wild bullshit I want to come up with, (laughs) (laughs) which I love. So I'll jump right into do I think it was successful? I have to agree with you, Paul. I don't think it was. But where I disagree with you is I still don't think it's successful in what it wanted to do, at least for me because i see the i see the things in it that are satire most of which are the the fednet advertisements that populate throughout the movie i think that's where the brunt of the satirization starts to come in but if you were to take those out all of the things that are in the movie as far as the narrative the character developments and and even the resolution doesn't really have a a, a tongue in cheek kind of vibe to it so the the entire story arc is anathema to me it is like and and i am one of the few teenagers that watched this and didn't just flip for it because i saw a society in which i would have absolutely no place whatsoever like i would not be a citizen in the Starship Troopers society in any way shape or form and i would be i would probably be among the people that they eradicated to get to this society
2: <laughs> right i felt that way
0: too i have no place here whatsoever so like the movie doesn't want me anyway or at least the civilization that it's depicting doesn't want me but like from the the funeral scenes to the boot camp scenes to the the combat scenes, which again, hold up like technically, I think this film, as far as the filmmaking goes, is really solid and holds up very well. Some of the acting, and I say some generously, is utter dog shit because <laughs> I watched this twice actually for for the podcast. The line that cracked me up with both times and I think is emblematic of like the acting as a whole is when uh, when Denise Richards and the other girl are rushing to try to get to the cockpit first and the two guys show up afterwards and he goes, oh, no, I've she's crazy. And I'm just like that. I don't know how that made that into the film. Like, I don't know how that guy wasn't hit with a brick and sent home. <laughs> like it was what what or no, he doesn't even say Ibanez or Ibanez, is Ibanez is how they pronounce it. It is Ibanez, yeah. And when I look at that name on paper, I don't know how anybody came up like I don't know how how Ibanez was was the pronunciation that wasn't what I would have thought. But again, I'm from Pittsburgh and we pronounce everything all fucked up. <laughs> uh so that always threw me. But it was like Ibanez, she's crazy. And I was like, that's, that's, I mean, like satire or not, that's, that's no good. But then at the end with the, with the brain bug, I think, and kind of what you said sort of drove this home for me was that like the brain bug is a Cthulhu God, like a, a, an HP Lovecraft old God.
2: An elder God is the term. I'm sorry.
0: The Eldritch, (laughs) the, (laughs) whatever, whatever the. HP Lovecraft. The Log Elder Craft. Gods. The Elder Gods fine. Yog-Sothoth go. is going to come eat my children.
2: No, not your children, just you. Frankie's too cute. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's
0: a darling. Frankie would eat Yog-Sothoth. But Yes, she would. The brain bug being emblematic of evil and it being a legitimate threat to civilization, as you said being like an evil entity, does sort of reinforce all of the stuff in the movie and take away the satire to me. Even the idea that psychic Nazi puts his hand on the, on the thing and reads its mind.
1: It's afraid. It's afraid.
0: And just the idea that this thing is that, that it is another thing that has learned to be afraid of us is the thing to cheer for. I can see how that could have been intended to be satirical but I really don't think it worked if the bug is actually a threat. Mm. So that's, that's where I fall down on it. Do I like the movie? Oh man. I wish I could say that I do. Cause it is fun. Uh, it's like, it's a, it's a fun, if you take it to a certain extent, I have to take it as a fun romp at, at very face value with the boobs and Denise Richards uh, because it, it, to enjoy it because Denise Richards to me is like, The Doritos of gorgeous women. I don't think of her very often, but she could not be more perfectly assembled if you did it in a lab after consulting like 2000 focus groups. I don't know, like Denise Richards at peak Denise Richards is like, if you taught an AI to make a beautiful woman that everybody would think was equally beautiful, she is Perfect. But I don't think about her unless I happen to to see her there. And so it's kind of like Doritos to me where it's just like, I never crave Doritos. But once I have the Doritos in front of me, I can't stop eating them. And that's Denise Richards. So on that like Doritos girl level, I can appreciate and enjoy this movie.
2: Dan, you better find an amazing clip from a Doritos commercial to put in there.
0: <laughs> but yeah, as a whole, I really um, there's too much. Non technical stuff that doesn't work for me in this movie for it to work for me.
1: Fair enough. Katie? Follow that. Oh,
2: <laughs> bitch, please. Okay, so like I said earlier, i, I watched I've been watching this movie since I was about 15, 16 years old, and I've watched it probably once, at least once every couple of years since then, and I grew to have a very different appreciation for what it was going for, because initially my thoughts were like, "Oh, this is just a big dumb action movie, and it's really fun, and look at all these pretty people!" because again, 16. and I did I did have to shout out, Paul, that you got you started watching movies with your mom, and so did I. My mom is the whole reason that I'm a film critic and love movies the way I do now. And she'll listen to this episode for sure, because she's a sweetheart. But I didn't really start evaluating it until I got older. And in the last few years, I've been watching it more. And I was like, oh, I really see what Verhoeven is going for here. Because Verhoeven is one of the few directors who, like, even if I don't initially love a movie when I watch it, I'm like, okay, what did I miss? What did I miss? Because there's something going on here and there's something worth looking at and evaluating. And I think the only person who gets close to that with him is maybe Cronenberg, because they're they're both very willing to go hard. And in this movie, I think Verhoeven comes as close to Cronenberg as he ever does. And I felt like now when I watch it, I see that it is going... For an anti-fascist message, it is trying to both portray fascism as a positive thing, but also really examine like, okay, well, if you think this is positive, why do you think that way? And also let its audience know these are the costs, like with just these little lines, like there's one moment where rico's dad throws in like oh i would rather take 10 lashes in this public square than go into the military or whatever and it's just tossed off and we never really hear about that again until rico gets his own lashes but i i every single time i've watched this that line always catches me like who takes public lashes in a square what the hell what's going on (laughs) in this society there's just all these little moments that just catch my brain and make me think like Something so much more is going on here. And that is where Verhoeven really succeeds for me. But I I do fall along the same lines of both Liam and Paul in saying that, like, initially this did not succeed. And I think that is more a byproduct of the 90s, because, I mean, I I was 12, 13 when this movie came out to age myself. And I remember things that were coming out then like Armageddon, Titanic, all that kind of stuff where it was very sincere and you couldn't assume that it had some deeper meaning behind it because it was just so flat, whereas this really does. And I think now we've grown to kind of understand what Verhoeven was going for. So I think it does work now. And then this week I read the book. I've always wanted to read the book, but I just never got around to it because I personally I'm not a big Heinlein fan. His style just doesn't work for me. But I read it and I was like, oh, shit, this is the perfect book for Verhoeven to adapt for this because it is very much like if you just read the book, you don't know anything about Heinlein or whatever. It very much feels like an endorsement of fascism and a agreement with this very militaristic uh rule-driven ideal and then the film subverts all of that all of that so for me i love this movie i watch it at least once a year and anytime i see it on i'm like ah starship troopers and i can just appreciate it for its individual like individual scenes and moments and it's so well shot You got to give it up to Verhoeven for how great he was at replicating things like Lenny Reifenstahl and Reifenstahl, one of those words, and old propaganda films and all of that like it, because I've seen a lot of that stuff. And so for me, it just hits those points where it's like, oh, I know what that's from. I know what that's from. And it then kind of unintentionally in my brain reinforces what Verhoeven is going for and I think now as a much older woman looking back 20 years ago watching it it's like okay that's why I liked the movie so much is because for me who grew up watching black and white and old films and has that kind of knowledge I was able to recognize all these things and see that like okay something more is going on here even though I wasn't fully capable of grasping what that was so I think this is a classic film And I think it's something that can really be like, you could probably write, and I'm sure there have been people who've done this, at least one or two theses on (laughs) what the meaning of Starship Troopers is, of the film versus the book versus whatever. So this for me is what cemented Verhoeven as one of my favorite directors. And I will continue, like the Lord of the Rings, to rewatch this movie at least once a year and just ponder. Because every time something new comes out, Every time I notice something else new and I'm like, hmm, how does that change my understanding of the film? So, And I definitely think, like for Liam, it's not going to work for everybody. But for me, it works like gangbusters. So I am really, and to be clear, folks, this was my pick. I was the one who was (laughs) like, we were going to talk fucking Starship Troopers. trying to get us
0: to watch Starship Troopers from word go.
2: Yes, yes, because I love it so much. And I think it's such an interesting examination of war movies, because it is both a war movie and a satire of a war movie. And it's just got so much going on that like, and those are my favorites. My favorite is when I can really just dig into a movie and pick it apart. And Verhoeven gives me everything I wanted with this film.
1: Yeah, man, it's really fascinating. I'll, I'll try and keep this short because there's really, we've all brought up so many layers to this, both from the filmmaking perspective, thanks to Paul and his insights, to the author's perspective, thanks to Katie going through the book. And the fat soft boy perspective from me. <laughs> I was going to say the viewer's perspective. But oh,
0: okay. <laughs> well, Dan, real quick, before you go on, I need you to do me a personal favor because we've been remiss and I can't let this episode go without talking about Clancy fucking Brown.
2: Um, oh, my God. Is there any
0: opportunity to talk about Clancy fucking Brown, because I think that's his given middle name. I think we need to, because I love that man and his ridiculous pirate face that he makes as the drill instructor <laughs> when he says, do you get me? And he squinches his face up weird mm-hmm. like he's a pirate in a Long John Silver's commercial. And nice. I fucking am here for it.
2: I love Clancy. One more question for you. Did Clancy Brown for you feel like a realistic drill sergeant?
1: So I think he did a good job with what he was given, but I'd be interested to have seen what Dale Dye's regiment. but more than that, more his coaching of the dialogue and how they were saying things was compared to how he did it later on when he did Saving Private Ryan and other films where I think I I see the coaching come through in a more realistic way. Now, granted, this is all fictional. It's an imaginary force. They didn't choose to call them space Marines or Marines. And that's part of what made the military stuff a little bit cheesier to me, because when you compare it to Jim Cameron's Aliens, for example, they decided to go with a very much colonial Marines that are something that came from something tangible that we know, which is the Marine Corps, which has a lot of lore and a lot of history. They hired an actor who had been a Marine and a drill instructor. So all the lingo is very accurate.
0: All right, sweethearts. What are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed. Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal's a banquet. Every
3: paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps.
1: And so the way they shot that, a lot of the interactions just feel very real and feel very Marine Corps-like. This is different because even though Dale died training the team. Arlie Ermy doing some voiceover for the loudspeaker, That that's his role in this, which I don't even know if he's in the credits, I couldn't find him. I don't know how much say they had and how the actors delivered their lines, but for example, like, do you get me is not something Marines say, right? Like they don't use that phrase. It would be a different phrase. They would say, do you understand? Or, you know, they, they use something different. There are little sort of incongruous things that, and again, they weren't sold as Marines, so that's fine. But there is a detachment there that makes the culture of this particular military group more fictional to me and so more detached from reality. But there's little glimpses of it. And I'm glad Paul brought up that Verhoeven had spent time not only in the Marines and the military um, in his home country, but also that he did films on military maneuvers, etc. Because he must have had a lot of say in how he wanted things done, how he wanted the culture to look and how he wanted this to show up. And so for example, uh this I'll, I'll be surprised if anybody knows this, but Michael Ironside, which by the way I think was one of the my favorite actors in the <sighs> film. I think he does a spectacular job and is in competition with Clancy Brown in this film. I think he did a really good job as a sergeant, really believable, empathetic as well, considering his role. He's not this single layer kind of dickhead drill instructor type character, but there's a scene when they I think when they're trying to get the final push out of the Whiskey Outpost where he says, come on, you apes, you want to live forever. Now, who for anybody who's studied Marine Corps history, that line sticks out like a sore thumb right away because that is a famous Marine Corps line that is taught to you in boot camp and was uttered by none other than Dan Daly in the Battle of Bella Wood in World War One. Now, it's not verbatim. They changed it. But Dan Daly who, by the way, if you look up a picture, has two Medals of Honor hanging from his neck, which is a feat that's only been accomplished by 19 service members in the history of the U.S. military. Seven of them were Marines. I would guess a majority of them died getting that second award. Not to mention that Dan Daly was actually commended for a third Medal of Honor, and the military leadership actually, uh, they downgraded it to, uh, I think, a Navy cross because they were like, it's... An, it's like not acceptable to allow someone to have three medals of honor and basically still be alive to tell the tale because it means that the award was... Uh...
0: It cheapens the award.
2: Oh, okay. So
1: his line, of course, in Bella Wood was, come on, you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? And that's what he said to his Marines as he charged into the fray. So again, that was a choice. Uh, whether one of the actors wrote that in, whether the writer did that, or whether uh, Verhoeven wanted that in there, you know, that's real Marine Corps lore. And so there's a mix of sort of more caricatures of the military here, as well as some realism that, again, is this sort of layer cake that, to coin a word from Ridley Scott and from Blade Runner, that Verhoeven put in here. And I think it reminds me of a question that we often hear asked in war film shows and in our show. Can you make an anti-war war film? Because often, no matter what you're trying to portray, like Platoon is a good example of a film that you know is sad and tragic it makes you see this loss of life it makes you ask what the hell are we doing in this jungle in the first place and yet platoon i'm sure increased recruitment numbers for the army and maybe for the infantry and that always happens right you show a war film you try and show you know the the boring parts the brutal parts the war atrocities and yet there are people who still enjoy watching those films in a jingoistic way or in a rah-rah, let's go military way. So I think it's really difficult as an artist, as a writer, as a director to juggle those things and balance it out and trying to make this a satire I think raises the stakes even more, makes it that much more difficult. How much do we make this a caricature? How much do we make it super realistic? Where do we put the budget on the effects? Which I agree with everyone here. The effects are just spectacular. So yeah, it's, it's, I think what verhoeven was going for was a really difficult thing to accomplish storytelling on hard mode exactly not not simple and something that when i watch it depending on how much i've read whether i've read the book recently whether i've read critiques from the time or talked to paul it opens up my eyes in a different way and i see different things in it so i think they definitely you have to give him credit for attempting such a difficult feat I would agree that because of the reaction, both from Paul saying there's a bunch of teenagers in the theater and Liam saying, I, I was repulsed even by the types of people who even liked this film that it came out that it made Liam dislike the film more. So in a sense, at least if you look at just release time, I would say it was not successful in what was it was trying to accomplish Now, 24 years later, when you look at it and examine it, and if you're willing to put the time in to like listen to this podcast episode or look up other ones, (laughs) read books about Heinlein and about his other philosophies and whether was he a fascist or not, like if you dig into it, then I think the layers start to emerge and then you can get a real sense for what they were trying to do. And so it's like To me personally, now the film is successful, and I love it, and I get what Verhoeven was trying to do. How did it do money-wise, by the way, Paul? I imagine it was successful. It bombed. It bombed, really? Okay. That's surprising. That's surprising. No, it was an expensive film. The production floor was about $130 million. Oh, in 97? Yep. Man. Yeah. That's a, no pun intended. That's some titanic levels of it budget. Was, like
3: I said earlier, an epic. It was a yeah. massive undertaking.
2: Yeah, the domestic opening was $22 million, The budget was $105 million. Oh, Well, actually, yeah, it was
3: $130 million. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, well, that's box office mojo, Paul. You're giving us the deets.
3: <laughs> no, well, look, it's an old, it's an old trick in Hollywood that you either don't tell what the budget is or underestimate. You, it. Yeah, you know.
2: But the the reported box office is fifty four million. Yeah.
3: So that lost some money. Yeah, it's actually recouped over the years now mm-hmm. with the uh, you I'm know sure. ancillary sales. Clancy Brown really a genuinely nice guy. That makes back. me so happy.
2: Oh, he seems like it.
3: A reader. A constant (gasps) reader, we were talking about books (laughs) all the time.
2: Oh, that makes me so happy.
3: Someone who uh, I took, uh, one of my things that I did on Starship Troopers was I took it around to the conventions in 97, including the World Science Fiction Convention. And uh, Clancy came with me to one and he looked at me about halfway through and he whispers, he says, wow. Wow. I didn't know you did this. You're really good, and you don't really hear that. And I don't mean that as you know a, a, a shout out to me. You don't hear that from actors very often because it's them no. being good, you know. And so right. he's very generous, and uh, I always like everybody likes Clancy. Michael Ironside, same way. He's been there. He's, he's he's ridden through his demons and through his phases. He's perfectly happy where he is. He gives us all. And he also made the very interesting observation that he said that he went to Paul early on and he says, Paul, he says, I get what this script is about, but how are you going to present this? And why have you done it this way? And he said, if I get up, Paul Verhoeven said, on a soapbox and wag my finger about this subject, no one's going to listen to me. But if I present just it as it is with no obvious editorializing and just tell the audiences, here it is, what do you think? That's the way I'm going to approach it. And that's exactly the way he approached it. a
1: bold it. move.
2: Right.
3: The way that the actors looked and the way they acted was intentional. They yes. were supposed to be perfectly genetic. Little, you know, plastic Troy Donahue's and Annette for based I mean, uh, Annette Funicello's. As far as Triumph of the Will, which you were quoting, uh, that was intentional. Um, yes. All of the geometric mass patterns of the soldiers on the fairground. If you go back and look at Triumph of the Will, the great, great, and and strangely conflicting. <laughs> because it's about the Nuremberg Rallies, um, right. the wonderful uh, cinematic achievement of Leni Riefenstahl uh, back in the early 30s. There are sh- shot grabs. And that was Paul one saying, yep, I'm going to do this. And if people catch it, they catch it. And if they don't, they don't. Captain Dye, uh, Captain Die did train traditional combat techniques and uh, simple boot camp kind of, you know, like handbook stuff, you know, the military mm-hmm. manuals. Mm-hmm. I remember at one point, he was sitting around one day and uh, he's in the movie, you know, there's a cutaway to him at the very end in the brain bug and he's one of the oh, generals. Nice. Yeah, he's got a cap oh. on, yeah, he's in there. And, uh, uh, oh, and the brain bug, when it says, uh, when uh, Pat Neil says, uh, you know, it's afraid, that invariably gets a laugh. And in audiences, went back in the day when it was being shown. And I think the idea being that this in- incredibly, you know, Imposing ugly thing would be afraid, you know, is kind of like incongruous. But that, as as Liam pointed out, there is a good point there that this thing is now come up against human savagery, which is much, much worse than the bugs, you know, because what do you see at the end? You see the brain bug getting, um, you know, an involuntary proctologist examination, ah. you know, and uh, ah. yeah, and it's that it sensor, which just cracks me up because that's Paul's sense humor. It's a very funny movie too. Mm-hmm. So, there's that as well, but-
1: Makes the- you think
0: back and wonder what it was doing to the cow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was the guy oh you did not know that we didn't I was, mention I was, that I was going to remind you Paul to let the viewers know since you're not credited officially or on IMDb what part you played in this movie with your again awesome mustache
3: I am the guy uh, the guy who's closest to the uh, camera who pushes the cow into the room <laughs> so that's me in Starship Troopers and uh, <laughs> there was no see there was no bug in there it was just a set and uh, we had it was really funny Paul actually held up this cardboard sensor thing that was really cheap to give an idea where the, you know, CG placement would be. And they actually had uh, pieces of, like, cow that were made out of plastic and rubber that was the silliest looking things. And he was like behind it, like waving it, you know, like pieces, (laughs) and just like laughing. And everybody was laughing because it looked so cheap. And that was one of the fun days on the set. He can be a lot of fun. But the whole point of the characters being as shallow was intentional. They were meant to be, you know, to suggest that they weren't thinking for themselves, that they were like, you know, so indoctrinated and a part of this culture that they just accepted whatever went along with it. And if you'll notice, the attrition rate of that basic training group is horrendous. There's very few of them survive, you know, and does anyone comment upon it? Does anyone go, oh, poor Suzuki or whatever his name Shijumi, you know? No, you know, it's just like in in a real combat situation, we all know that people's best friends are killed and you're traumatized for life. We know that, you know, but Paul wasn't going there. And Dale die one day sitting around and it was during the filming of one of those mass uh, formation parade ground scenes and Dale was getting everyone in position. I walked over and, I, and I'd known Dale for a while and I said, Captain die. Cause you never just call him Dale. I said, Captain die. Yeah. I go, he was grumpy throughout that movie. I go, is there anything in this film that you find militarily accurate? He goes, these stupid sons of bitches. I complain all the time. I say this isn't the way they would do it. And Paul would say, we are not making a movie about the way they would do it. <laughs> and, you know, and there you go. You know, that explains a lot. Met. Exactly. Oh. It's a fantasy, except I for one sequence, and that's the landing with the landing craft on Klindathau when the platforms come down. That's actually based on some and you can find them online, some documentary footage of the Normandy landings in mm-hmm. D Day. When they oh, came yep. off of the things en mass like that into that withering fire and were just cut to pieces. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in Clendathau when they come down in these mass groups, and boom, they're just slaughtered by the bugs, you know. But but uh, you know, he Captain Dyer was forever grumbling about. No, that's not the way you would do it. No, no one would ever talk about this. No, no one ever would ever beat up a recruit because then you give up the power, you mm-hmm. know. Which if anyone right. anyone of us familiar with the military knows exactly what that means when you have a drill yeah. instructor. And uh, as far as Clancy's performance go, he actually looked at like things like the D.I. with Jack Webb, Mm -hmm. if you've ever seen that Mm -hmm. film. Uh, Of course, Mm -hmm. he looked at Full Metal Jacket. And, you know, he did his homework. He's a big fan. But Mm -hmm. the character itself was not that kind of drill instructor. Mm -hmm. The character itself, which they didn't bring up, but was in the script and they had a scene that they didn't film. You know how he's always saying medic? After he's really hurt somebody? Mm-hmm. Well, in this future society, it's in the script and they were going to shoot it, but they didn't. It was supposed to be so medically advanced that you can break someone's arm or break someone's oh, leg. That and It would be good as new two days later.
0: That makes you sense. Know? You right. do see the guy right. with that thing on his arm. It's like a mini Bacta tank from Star exactly. Wars. Exactly.
3: Or when Johnny Rico is like, you know, being like, you know,
1: sewed up in the like bring tank. Like bringing back from the dead just about.
3: Exactly. And right. that was the point that that's why they could get away with that, you know. But in terms of the realism of that, no. I mean, the characters, um, the portrayals of the characters, a lot of the military aspects of it, uh, the general ideation that supposedly ran as the plot beneath it were not meant to be realistic. They were meant to be a fantasy story Hmm. that, you know, of this fantasy world. But again, once you got under that, you went, "Uh uh-oh, you know, (laughs) there's a lot going on here that criticizes it. Finally, as pure filmmaking goes, you said technically, I've seen the film so many times and, um, and I watched it. I was literally there for every single day. You can find my book, The Making of Starship Troopers, on eBay and stuff like that. It's still around. And it was a, a licensed product. It's filled with illustrations. It's got a long 15,000-word interview with Paul at the end of it where we cover all this. Um, but as far as the technique of Starship Troopers, for me, from the moment that Johnny Rico has the public whipping which in a sly, very sly bit that very few people seem to comment on, it's an African-American man whipping a Caucasian, mm. which as soon as I saw that, I walked out and I burst out laughing and I said, Paul, he just grins, you know, and I knew yes. what he was doing, you know, I knew what he was doing, you know, uh, but uh, it's just there, you know, and no one says anything about it. But anyway, from the moment that happens to when you do that pull out and dissolve from him to Carmen and um, uh, Xandor on the bridge of the Roger Young. From that moment on, that film never stops. It's like an express train. It's just like every sequence goes seamlessly into the next and it is such a ride. And, you know, the same thing happens in lots of RoboCop and, in fact, in Blade Runner. You know, Blade Runner. From the moment that Pris is seen uh, walking past the traffic meters, mm-hmm. uh, from that moment on, if you aren't immersed into that film, you will be. And from that moment on, it's to me, it's the seamless editing, seamless everything is of a piece. And I sit back sometimes and just say, "Fuck me, look at that! That is that. That's why. <laughs> that's why these guys are called a listers. You know, right? Look at that. That's why
2: they're auteurs. Oh, mm-hmm.
3: absolutely. And Paul Verhoeven is, but he will never. He never will admit to that. He knows, I'm not surprised. He knows the pitfalls. He, it's like right. Ridley mm-hmm. Scott. Ridley Scott has done some auteur films, but he would never say that he's making they an know art better. film. Yeah, they won't they wouldn't work. People say, right. well, we're not going to give a, $100 million to make an art film. And guess what? <laughs> but guess what, Phil Tippett, and I'll finish with this. Phil Tippett, after the film came out and the reviews attacked him, and the film essentially failed. Phil Tippett actually called out Paul Verhoeven and said, "Paul, don't feel bad. When will you ever get the chance again to make a hundred and thirty million dollar art film?"
2: <laughs> it's true. That's awesome. It's so true. Like, and I love that Verhoeven was like, "They don't. They don't know what I'm doing. Fuck it. Let's go. Let's right.
3: go." And the ones that did, and the ones that did, he goes, "Yeah. So what?"
2: <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> like, Paul, I just love that he goes for well, it. Paul
3: is one of the most meticulous, well prepared. You know, you don't give 130 million dollars to a guy who can't utilize. You it.
2: can tell. You can tell. There are some directors where you can see it on the screen. Uh, Denis Villeneuve, Ridley Scott. Like uh,
3: I loved Denis. Denny's stuff I, is. I was just really going to say I didn't want
1: to be the guy to bring up Blade Runner again, but if you want to talk about a hundred and fifty million dollar plus art film and how do you get that made? know of doing 2049 with Ridley Scott's Blessing I think mm-hmm. is one of the most or uh, the greatest and examples of that in recent history unbelievable
2: I'm expecting that from the new Dune movie I too I hope so sorry too. I worked
3: on the <laughs> David Lynch Dune and I was on that for oh. two years and then I worked on Blue Velvet right after that and so I know David well from that period and uh but and someday um, I want
0: to talk to you about your experience on Silence of the Lambs because Pittsburgh oh that yes! was
1: interesting
3: that was interesting yeah <laughs> a lot of that a lot of that was meant to be funny Believe it or not,
1: <laughs> Paul. Do you want to become a Do you want to become a regular host on this podcast? We'd love to have you back again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll have you back anytime you want.
1: Okay,
3: honestly, and again, um, not to brag, but today I did an interview for a paper in Ohio to kind of like advertise a thing that I'm doing at the Dixie Twin Drive-In in dayton ohio where they're screening blade runner the final cut and before that they are going to do a live zoom q a where they're going to throw me up on the drive-in screen and awesome. uh, people in the cars are going to ask me questions that's awesome so, uh, i thought that was such a cool I might idea fly to ohio
1: just for oh, that oh <laughs> i was i was so behind
3: that
0: it's it's about the only reason to go to ohio
2: <laughs> oh yeah you must be so excited
3: And then I'm doing a commentary on Dune uh, for Arrow Video, and then doing a commentary on Legend for Arrow Video (gasps) in the next couple of days. Wow. And so uh, I'm also finishing up a couple of articles. And as has been mentioned, I've been working on a book about Paul's uh, RoboCop, which I also worked on. It was one of my films. And uh, Total Recall and Starship Troopers as his major science fiction trilogy. Conveniently leaving Yo hollow man out of the mix.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to look for your Starship Troopers book if I can find it on eBay. And I'm looking for it.
2: I am too.
3: 1997, Making of Starship Troopers, Paul M. for
1: Michael Salmon. And I have no doubt that eventually this Verhoeven book that you're working on will get published. And I'm really excited to read that and get into it.
2: Well, Paul, as a film critic, I have to say that it's so awesome to talk to another film critic who's been doing it for for so long. It was so awesome to get to talk to you and someone who's seen so much from such an interesting perspective, especially as a film critic when you're like kind of watching it from two sides, Mm -hmm. I would imagine, where you're like okay, I'm participating and I'm part of this, but I'm also watching it as a person who's going to comment on it later.
3: I had to stop that afternoon. Oh, no, I well, bet. it wasn't just the, the horror of the film. It was also the fact that, you know, there's that old saying, no one can serve two masters. And, you know, yes. it's just, I had to make a decision, you know, and-
2: uh, Which way am I going to go yeah, on this And type I thing? still,
3: you know, people have been trying to pull me back into criticism for a long time. And I was actually not bad, you know. And I love. No, you were. I,
2: I liked your reviews. Oh, thank
3: you. Um, but it just for me, it got to a point where, well, are you going to make them? And help make them, or are you going to write about people that make them? And- don't
2: do it. Don't do it. You don't get any money for it. <laughs> oh,
1: do you think we
2: do? There's no th- money in Do criticism. you think we did back then?
1: <laughs> Honestly, we are so flattered that you came on and that you'd spent some time with us. We love talking to you. I'm glad I could introduce you to Katie and Liam because they're my new partners and I really love talking about film with them. And uh, we really can't thank you enough for your time. I I really appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to have you gone on again in the future if you want to come on and talk more Verhoeven or anything.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure, especially (laughs) being able to talk about one of my favorite movies. Excellent. Well, thank you for the kind words. Yeah, I appreciate
0: it. No, this has been a blast,
3: Paul. Thank you. And remember, service guarantees citizenship. (laughs)